everybody! This is the Manga Mavericks Podcast from all-comic.com. We're a podcast dedicated to discussing manga as a medium and as an industry. I'm your host, Lum Ramayasha, and on this behemoth of an episode, we're giving you guys a full rundown of this year's Anime Expo. That's right, an over four-hour-long podcast to discuss over four days' worth of events and activities. Joining me to go over all this goodness is We Lord GTZ, co-host of Manga Mavericks at Movies, an editorial writer for all-comic.com, and Tanami Faithful. And we're also joined by the Shonen Sunday guru himself, Sakaki, webmaster of the weekly Shonen Sunday Talkback blog and Twitter. At least, you'll get to hear Sakaki about half an hour in. There was unfortunately a mishap where his audio wasn't recording for the first hour of our conversation. So we had to trim down some of our earlier discussion points where he didn't have his audio for. If we hadn't lost that first hour, you guys would be listening to a five-hour-long podcast instead of a four-hour-long one. But don't you fret. You guys will start hearing Zikaki once we get to the real exciting stuff from the Dr. Stone premiere onwards. Yes, indeed. We cover the gamut of AX premieres and battles in this podcast, from the historic Japanese language premiere of Mewtwo Strikes Back Evolution, to Oron High School host cup author Bisco Hattori's first North American con appearance. Plus, we also give you the lowdown on the lies, the food, the convention center, the dealers, Earl, and Artist Alley. Almost everything and anything there is to know about what our Anime Expo 2019 experience was like. It was a lot of chaos, but did we have fun overall? And would we recommend you attending next year's show? Listen and learn as we explore the AX Experience. Expo 2019 was an explosion of anime fans, and we're here to talk about it. We're here to report on all the anime expo happenings, everything that went on this year at the convention. There was a lot that happened. The earth was shaking. It was a world-shattering experience. Literally, there were earthquakes. We were shaking about in that convention center. Woo! It was a wild time for sure. And we are going to report on the entire experience. And with me here today is We Lord and Sakaki, who were there at AX with me. And we're just going to talk about the entire whole shebang, all five days of it. Ain't that right, guys? Greetings. Yeah. So, Anime Expo 2019. This was all of our second years attending AX and our first year attending as press. All hail press. 
Yeah, those press badges were a godsend. They gave us priority access to the lines where you got priority entry. So that saved us hours of line waiting. Literally, like, I guess we'll get into this later, but some of those uh, lines, especially for the main event hall, are ridiculous for general attendees. Every con, to some extent, could be considered line con, but AX, I think, hops the list. Especially this year, where on Thursday, July 4th, there were people who waited the entire day to get into the con, missing everything, because it was that bad. That's just insanity. Yeah, they really messed up that Thursday. It was, uh, and there was a reason why it felt so much breezier inside the LACC. Why it didn't feel like there was a flood of people to wade through. And that's because everyone was trapped outside. The flood was gated off at the entrance. Yeah, like, some people literally who had lined up at, like, 8 a.m. didn't get in until 12. Four hours just to get into the convention center. Yeah. Laser, didn't that happen to him? Yeah, so, uh, friend of, uh, the Tanami Faithful Discord, Laser Kid, went to AX this year as a general attendee, and he lined up at around 8 a.m. or 9 a.m. or something, and he didn't get in for, like, three to four hours, and he barely made it to the Dr. Stone premiere, but... That shouldn't be an issue when you line up that early. That's, like, ridiculous. It really is. I mean, that is the amount of time you should have spent in the line for Dr. Stone. Exactly. <laughs> under, under normal conditions if everyone was inside the convention center. Uh, Dr. Stone, I think we'll get to it, but it should have been a full house, but because of the poor line management, it wasn't. But... Uh, we'll get to that stuff later, but I think we need to rewind the clock back to, like, the beginning of the experience, which predates me arriving at L.A., because you guys, we Lord and Sakaki, were already in L.A. before me. So let's talk about some of your pre-AX experiences. For example, how did Batch Pickup go for you guys? So we were behind a Funimation representative and a King Records representative. And this was a group of people. It wasn't a group of people. So, like, I think for industry, they can pick up their badges in bulk. Mm. So, like, it was one representative picking up badges for everyone in their group. Okay. And that took a long time because they had to check through and validate 30 badges. Yeah, then, like, put the badge stickers on them and all that stuff. Which, strangely enough, they couldn't find mine, so they printed me just one with my name on it. Wow. And I understand after that, you guys went to see Spider-Man Far From Home at the Regal LA Live, right? I guess at the risk of turning this into an episode of Bugabarics Act Movies, uh, we won't, we'll keep it brief, but... I saw Far From Home relatively recently in the last couple days, and I also quite enjoyed it. I did feel it was a rather predictable story, knowing all the beats, but also everyone kind of guessed what the major twist would be. I don't know if anyone precisely guessed the exact way the twist would be executed, but, like, you know, because the 
character of Mysterio is in this movie. Everyone who knows, like, Mysterio's background knows that things would not be as they seem. And that he was, he had some scheme that he was conning everyone. But Mysterio is so innocent, Sid, he would never do anything wrong. He's <laughs> from another universe. Yeah. I, li- I do love that fake. That uh, bait and switch. You'd think that they might actually try something with this multiverse stuff. Especially after Into the Spider-Verse kind of put that idea in people's heads. But I'm glad it's just like a ploy by Beck. Because apparently that's where people will believe it now. Uh, I really enjoyed that moment from him. There is like he was exploiting just... The ridiculous things people will believe now because their sense of reality has been shaken thanks to all the crazy sci-fi and supernatural shenanigans of the last couple of years. But I guess the big twist that I didn't think about was the stuff with the scrolls. I was like, oh, now this puts the movie in a whole other context and it makes me understand why certain characters were acting the way they were and seemed out of character. Yeah. And I'm also so funny. happy they're using the scrolls. They're actually doing stuff with them. Yeah. I mean, what happened to Talos after Captain Marvel? Where did he go? I guess now we know. Uh, I have to wonder what Nick Fury is doing in space. What that's building up to. So, I guess that'll be something to explore in Phase 4. Well, then, I, uh, to just talk about my Wednesday, July 3rd, you know, that's when I arrived in L.A., and I arrived, like, close to noon. V-Lord picked me up. We briefly checked me into the Airbnb we were staying at. Then we headed down to the LACC to pick up my badge, as well as wristband for co- for Wheelord to go see uh, Zero the Enforcer at that night, so. Yes, the thing that sold out in less than 30 seconds. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, should, should we get into that then? Since, uh... Yeah, I'll, I'll, we'll, we'll get into that. I'll just mention, we, we, there is some stuff leading up to that in the day, so I'll just mention. So, getting the badge did not take... Any time at all, really. Uh, it was very quick. Unlike uh, your guys' experience, I got it in like a manner of minutes. And after that, we had lunch nearby at, I forget the name of the establishment, but it was really good fried chicken. I think it was Tom's Urban. Tom's Urban. Good fried chicken there. Nice uh, sauces as well. After that, we headed over to Kinokuniya. Which, you know, is always fun to browse and peruse through. I didn't buy anything. We Lord almost... We Lord, you did buy something. I bought the Shaman King character book that I think uh, Hiroyuki Takei released last year. That's so, right. Yeah. I'm assuming it's last year because it already has, like, promotions for the Kodansha release. So, <laughs> yeah. My biggest surprise visiting Kinokuniya was that there was a scarcity of Rumiko Takahashi stuff. I saw some Japanese Ranmas, but there were, like, no Renes, except for the most recent volume that came out in English, and that very disappointed me. I was very surprised and disappointed. I wish that the first one of Mao had come out already, so 
I could have bought it while I was there, but perhaps the next time I'm in an area with a Kinokuniya, I'll pick up a copy of the first volume of Mao whenever that'll come out. I mean, you could always just buy it on Bookwalker, too. Yeah, that's true, but I like it's it's the experience of going to a store, like a physical place, and then buying a physical book that feels special. But regardless, after that is where We Lord and I parted ways, because We Lord went to meet up with the Tanami Faithful crew. Well, I went back to the Airbnb to work on some animation stuff that I needed to finish up before the con. And during my time at home, I decided to stream uh, the, well, watch the stream of the events happening in Petrie Hall, because they stream all the events that come out of Petrie Hall, live programming one. And I missed, like, the first couple of stuff, but I did manage to catch uh, the copyright panel that was being done uh, called Fair and Art, Fair Use and Foul Play that was being done by a copyright lawyer called Jack Lerner. And it was actually quite interesting because he pulled in specific examples of what would be something protected under fair use and how he would go about justifying and defending that from a lawyer's perspective, from a legal perspective. So. That was quite interesting, and that was a really good panel. Definitely, I think, very valuable if you are an artist that is creating derivative works, fan artworks, and, like, want to really be educated on the law. That's, like, a great panel to kind of uh, sit through and then, like, kind of learn just a good starting point of information from. And then after that, the other panel that I watched was the developing action games with lots of characters by indie creates and you know as someone who is not that big into video games and very knowledgeable to scene i couldn't really fully appreciate like everything they were showing about their new games like it seemed cool there was something involving shantae in a fighting game that seemed pretty neato the main thing i remember from that panel is just the really terrible fan questions at the end. Like, there was a question from someone who's like, oh, why aren't you making more Mega Man Zero games? And they were like, well, we don't own the copyright to Mega Man. So, like, yeah. And see, the baffling thing was that the very next question was about was about the same thing. It was like, it was literally them asking about the Mega Man Zero franchise and will you make more games with the original characters you made for Mega Man Zero and they had to they very politely you know figured out a way to expand on their previous point to say well we don't own the characters so we can't use them in our games but maybe contact Capcom and see if they'll let us do something with them or just go play Azure Striker Gun Vault that's basically their spiritual successor. Yeah, so the panel itself, you know, that part was kind of fun to watch them, you know, talk about their new games and show off, you know, trailers and stuff. Like, I like the aesthetic of all their stuff, even if, like, I didn't retain much just because I'm not that knowledgeable of the games or the scene, but 
Yeah, those those fan questions. Very awkward, very embarrassing. But yeah, that was my only other exposure to Anime Expo stuff that night. So V Lord, why don't you take us away and talk about your day? Um, okay, so after I parted ways with you, I went to go hang out with the Tsunami Faithful crew. Um, so I basically just went to the JW Marriott, and, uh, basically, CJ and, uh, Daniel were still on their way, I think, to their hotel. So, like, I just kind of met up with, uh, our uh, other writer, uh, Kuro Kitty, and, like, just had, like, a drink with her in, like, the main lobby area that they have. And then, like, when everyone got there, like, CJ and everyone, we just kind of had a quick discussion about how we're going to cover everything at the con. And then we grabbed an early dinner, and then the fun part happened where I got to go to the Conan screening. Yeah, Zero the Enforcer at the Regal LA Live and the 4DX Theater. So tell us everything you can about that. We kind of already talked about it before in our pre-AX pod, but go into as much detail as we can, because I'm sure uh, all of us will want to hear it again. Yes, so I got to the Regal Theater, and the first thing that I noticed is that the AX staff there was really disorganized. Um, So obviously this is the first year they're doing the 4DX screenings, but they really didn't know where to exactly direct people Like once you got inside. So I got inside the theater, and I asked one of the volunteers, hey, can I just like go in? Do I have to line up? And... At first, they directed me outside to a line. So I met a few Conan fans out there. Um, we just talked about the series a little bit. We actually played a, a Detective Conan Uno game, which was really fun. But uh, then um, they noticed, hey, you have a wristband already. They said the wristband people can just go in to the theater room. And I'm like, wait, what? They didn't tell me this. So I went up to the volunteer, and he's like, Oh, yeah, I, I didn't know that at first. Yeah, you can go in. So there there must have been some miscommunication there, because, like, some of the volunteers just didn't know exactly what they were doing. <laughs> but um, in any case, I finally got into the actual proper theater room um, where the 40X screening was taking place, and I just, like, found a nice seat um in the front section of the theaters, like, the 4DX theater is relatively small. It's about a hundred seats total. So, like the back seats had already been filled up for the most part, but those front seats were fairly empty. And one of the reasons for that, though, was that at least like around ten of them were reserved for TMS staff. Um. So after I sat down, a few of them actually started coming in. I wasn't really familiar with like who some of them were since I'm not really familiar with a lot of the TMS uh, USA division, or at least, like, any of their members, but it seemed like they were fairly important people. So I was kind of nervous, like, oh, they're sitting, like, right next to me. What do I do? <laughs> <laughs> um. So, yeah, that, that was uh, interesting. Of course, that that's a good segue into the next two people that came in. Sandy Fox, who voices uh, Chibusa and Sailor Moon, and her husband, Lex Lang, the voice of Goemon in uh, Lupin Part 4 and Part 5, as well as a bunch of other Lupin dubs. So they were sitting in the seats uh, 
right behind me, and I immediately realized it was them because they were promoting uh they were promoting Goemon Spray of Blood and Fujiko's Lie um before the showing was uh before the Conan movie was starting. And when the Goemon promo came up, Lexing is literally like, Oh hey, that's me. <laughs> 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 so I'm like, yep, that's definitely Lex Lag. Um so I kinda just mustered up the courage and uh basically just went up to him and said hi. And I just said like, Hey, I'm from a Tanami Faithful. We've interviewed like Richard Apgar and Michelle Ruff before and a bunch of the other uh Lupin voice actors. I just wanted to say like Thank you for working on this film, because I also overheard that he was the ADR director from, like, a conversation they were having. So I, we talked about Conan a little bit. We talked about some of the other animes they've worked on, as well as a little bit with Sandy Fox, too. And it was just really nice. They're, like, both really, really nice people, and they were just really open to just talking about their stuff. And you could clearly tell that they loved working on, like, anime, and they really put a lot of work into what they do. And uh, the best part of it, uh, at the end of our conversation, both Sandy Fox and Lex Lang gave me their business cards, which was, like, so cool. And, yeah, um, so hopefully uh, Tsunami Faithful can uh, get an interview with them sometime soon. I already sent uh, th- their contact info to Paul, so I hope that he's working on it, because I- I'd really like to uh, talk to them, or at least, like, hear one of us talk to them. So yeah, that that was a really good experience, and it just kind of gave me this like nice high before the movie. <laughs> <laughs> that is awesome. I mean, I have to tell you, dude, you were doing an amazing job, like networking throughout the entire con. I was super blown away. Most of it was pure luck. I I wasn't really like going out of my way to do it. It just kind of happened. But uh. I guess we should. I should talk about the actual movie though, because that's kind of the biggest part here. Mm-hmm. Um. So yeah. So it's Detective Conan movie twenty two zero the Enforcer. Um. And of course, it was the premiere of the English dub. So it was really interesting hearing the dub because I I hadn't watched the version that got ripped from the Arabic I think release. So I was going into this basically blind. And I actually really liked it. It's very different from the Funimation dub, but it has, it, like, it has this kind of feel that feels a lot closer to the, uh, original, uh, Japanese voices. So I kind of like that about it. I do feel the script might, uh, might have, uh, had some room to improve at times. It felt a bit, like, very literal sometimes, but overall the actual performances were really good. And yeah, I was I was really surprised when I saw the actual cast list at the end because the entire movie I was thinking, huh, is Kone being played by Christina V? And it's not Christina V, but Wendy Lee, which was really weird because I never would have imagined Wendy Lee as Conan. That that just didn't really click with me right away. But hey, she did a good job. Yeah, really, everyone in that dub did a good job. Kyle McCarley as Amro. Pure perfection. <laughs> Inspector Kuroda, uh, Richard Upgar's Inspector Kuroda, literal god tier. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he has one of those voices that, like, is so distinct that you can immediately pick it out in a room. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, Christina views Ron. Uh, Koguro's an interesting one because that's a Xander Mobis, the dude who's the Smash announcer. Wow. Can you imagine Koguro announcing Smash? <laughs> <laughs> the weird part is, is that he didn't really sound like Xander Mobis's like Smash voice at all. It felt very different, which was why I didn't really realize right away, oh, it's him. <laughs> yeah, even I was second-guessing myself at first. I was like, did I really see Xander Mobis as Koguro on that cast list? But then Shroom sent me the screen cap of the cast list, and I'm like, yup, it was Xander Mobis. <laughs> Xander Mobis is so young, too. It's hard to imagine playing, like, an old character like Koguro, but... I guess he's made it work for what you're Yeah, I mean, it, I feel like his performance might have been the weakest simply because I feel nailing Koguro is probably the toughest thing. But I feel by, mm. by the end of the movie, he kind of got into the groove of it. So I hope uh, if they do dub more Conan stuff, he'll finally kind of get that rhythm going. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I, I did talk to Lex Lang after the movie, and I said like, hey... I, I really hope you guys uh, dub uh, Movie 23. I've heard really good things about it. It's just like, yeah. And he didn't really, like, give a yes or a no. But the one thing to note is that they do dub that teaser part with Kaido Kid at the end of the film. So I do have a feeling the fact that they kept that in is a sign that they are going to dub it. Hmm. But yeah. So hopefully they dub it. I, I, I really hope they do have more plans to dub stuff, because I, I think that'd be really cool. Does Kaido Kid speak in that preview? He does. Do know who... Oh, who plays him? I am not sure. I'm, I'd assume it's the same person who plays Shinichi in the film, who oh. is... One sec, I'm literally popping up the cast list right now. <laughs> Griffin Burns plays Shinichi. So I'd assume Griffin Burns also plays Kaito. Okay. Like, they did show the cast for literally everyone, but there's so many names that go by that you literally can't memorize all of them. Like, so I tried to memorize the core ones, and then uh, Inspector Kuroda was easy because that was Epcar easily. And, yeah. (laughs) So I, I checked with people who've seen the rip. The rip does not have the cast list. Yeah, so that's why so many people were wondering about it when the actual film was screening. Um, but yeah, for the for the release that they showed in the theater, it did have a full cast list. So I have a feeling we are going to see this film on home video pretty soon. But oh yeah, one thing I forgot to mention is the actual 4D effects of the film. So. The funny thing about this is that I remember the day before this, I was we were joking with Jekka about how Conan has no reason to need 4D, and that 4D is such a dumb thing for Conan. But I gotta say, after watching that film, the 4DX effects were fantastic. Like, they really f- immerse you further into the film, which is so cool. Like, basically, they add all these, like, shaking and, uh, smoke effects for, like, whatever, like, there was, like, a running sequence or, like, an explosion or, like, a car sequence where, like, they're in Amuro's car. There's one point in the film where they have to, like, take Amuro's car, drive it out of a tower, 
And then, like, uh, I think you have to redirect, like, some sort of, like, missile or satellite thing that's launching down onto another building. And, uh, like, 40 effects during that are insane, because, like, your chair's just constantly shaking, like, all over the place. It's so cool. Um, so yeah, I'm, I have mixed feelings about the fact that they had to limit the amount of people who could see the screening severely by making a 4DX screening. But at the same time, the 4DX experience was really cool. So, it's a double-edged sword there. But, uh, yeah, the 4DX stuff was worth it. But, uh, overall, it was really fun. I, I really enjoyed it. Um, after everything was over, I got a picture with Lex Lang, too. Once again, super nice guy. Yeah, it was just a really great experience and a really good, like, prelude for, uh, anime expos of main events. Excellent. I really hope that we see the film out, if not in a limited theatrical run, uh, you know, just out on the home video soon enough. Because I definitely want to watch this dub. And I want to support Conan on home video. And hopefully help more come over here again. Yeah, I mean, I'd, I'd buy the movie in a heartbeat. Like, as a Conan movie, it's not as good as a Crimson Love Letter. Though, uh, Crimson Love Letter also has the advantage of having Best Boy Heiji, of course. Yeah. <laughs> but it's still a fun movie. Mm-hmm. That was Wednesday, July 3rd. That was day zero of Anime Expo. And now let's talk about day one. And V-Lord and I, we got up pretty early on day one because we wanted to get autographs. So we woke up. What time did we wake up? 4.30? Something like that, yeah. Yeah, we woke up at 4.30, left around 5, arrived around 5.30. You know, psychologically, the line didn't seem that long. and Compared to other lines at AX, it wasn't that long, but it was just long enough to prevent us from getting some of the more in-demand autograph tickets, like Rika Matsumoto's, which was who I was gunning for, but alas, did not get to receive an autograph ticket for, which is a shame, because that was her only autograph date was on that Thursday, so that was a real bummer. I even brought my own DVD copy of the original Mewtwo Strikes Back, you know, for her to sign if I, I got the, the opportunity, but the, not from the past. But I also missed out on Bisco Hattori because, again, Bisco Hattori was probably one of the most, if not the most, in-demand guest at the con in terms of autographs. I think that there was someone who had lined up at 5pm on the previous day to get an autograph ticket for Biscuatori. Like, she was the in-demand guest uh, this year. So, she ran out before we got to the counter. But, we were just able to arrive in time to get autograph tickets for the premiere team, which included Hiro, Yuki, and Maishi. And, you know... The director of Gurren Lagann and Killa Kill, you know, one of my favorite animes of all time. So that was exciting. And, of course, alongside that, it was the rest of the Trigger team that came to promote Premiere, like Superlog, Wakabayashi, 
And that was really cool. And uh, she so, got Koyama. And Koyama, yep. So we got autograph tickets for the Promare team, and that's who you were gunning for from the beginning, too, right? Yeah, that's what I was planning to gun for, because beforehand I looked up, like, some stuff about, like, trigger autographs, and I had heard, like, if you want to guarantee yourself an autograph from Trigger, go on the first day. Because, mm-hmm. uh, as we would learn later, not everyone who gets a priority ticket gets through that line. Yeah, so we'll talk about that in just a moment. So anyway, after that, we got our wristbands for Mewtwo Strikes Back later that day. And that didn't take too long, I would say. It probably took 10, 20 minutes. I think it was around that point that we actually met up with you and Jekka Sakaki. Yeah, so I know after we got the Mewtwo wristbands, we went to go line up in the priority line on the South Hall entrance. Yeah, and so that was interesting, because we did have to wade through some people to try and figure out where that priority entrance was, but it really is, like, near the garage of the LXTC, basically, and it is, like, a a gated-off kind of line, but, like, it wasn't that long, you know, certainly was not as long compared to the line to get in for general attendees, (laughs) but... Yeah, we got into that line, and that was still a mess in of itself, even though it did move faster, because there were Artist Alley and Exhibitors also in this priority line, but they were given the same amount of priority as press and regular priority badge holders. And that's kind of a problem when it's 9 a.m. on opening day, and we have Artist Alley members and exhibitors who need to get inside the convention to set up their boots. Because the place opens, it, it's supposed to open for the priority batch holders at 9.30, you know, in order to buy stuff. And then for all attendees, it's supposed to be open by 10 a.m. And there were Artist Alley and exhibitors stuck in that line and they didn't get in on time. So that was kind of a mess. There was a lot of complaining from exhibitors, artist styles, the industry people, you know, in that line that I was overhearing. I spotted a lot of cool people in that line that I did not get work up the courage to talk to. Like I saw Vizzy Pop's crew in the line and was like, oh man, that's so awesome. But one person that you spotted, Relord, and you did uh, talk to was Max Middleman. Yeah, so I guess, first of all, Sakaki was the one who spotted him. Yeah, it was very weird. We were in, the, so it was separated to two lines. There was a left side and a right side. We went into the right side, and the right side moved a lot quicker than the left side for very undiscernible reasons. I have no clue I think why. that's also how we got separated. So, uh, yeah, I just talked to him briefly and just, like, said, hey, I, I really like you like, One Punch Man and Hunter Hunter. Um, we took a picture together. And then I sent that picture, I think, to CJ. And CJ's like, hey, we've been trying to get him for Tsunami Faithful for a while. Could you, like, maybe get his contact info or something like that? So that that's when the networking part happened where we started talking about, hey, could, like, CJ or me or someone get in contact with you, and then we just kind of set up a thing like that. So yeah, it was interesting and uh, really nice. He's also a really super nice guy, and yeah, it was really fun talking to him. 
That's awesome. I admit, I didn't recognize him when you pointed him out to me, so I'm really glad you guys did. So, like, I, I saw his name tag, and I'm like, is that Max Middleman? I'm, I'm not sure what he looks like, so maybe it's just someone else with his name. But then, yeah, we look yeah. up his face, and I'm like, yeah, that's Max Middleman. Huh. Well, I'll be, yeah. I also did not recognize him by name or appearance until after you explained it to me. Yeah. Yeah, I wish I had been quicker on the draw so I also could have joined in in that conversation, but I I was not prepared, so I'm glad V-Lord could take the initiative for that. And you could have joined in, you are like, right behind me. I know, but I didn't recognize him right away, and I, I had to think about, like, what was he in, what should I ask him about, you know, so... I was not prepared yeah, so right off like the bat. Saitama but... and One Punch Man and uh, Meruem and uh, Hunter Hunter. Mm-hmm. He's also Konohamaru and Boruto. Oh, yeah, he is. And Ritsu and Mob Psycho. He's been a lot of stuff these past few years. Yeah, I mean, I think One Punch Man really, like, took off for him. Like, he's been getting a lot of stuff, mm-hmm. like, last few years for sure. Most definitely. But, yeah, I guess we should talk about once we got into the actual uh, convention yeah. center. So, we got in... About at 9.30, and then you went up to the exhibitor's hall to try to get Atsushi Okubo autographed Yeah, so I guess uh, I should talk about that. So when I got into the exhibitor's hall, Funimation had their booth all set up and stuff, and people were trying to line up for Okubo. The issue, though, was that the volunteers had let everyone in early, for one thing. So I think the Funimation staff members weren't ready yet, and they're like, okay, guys, back away. We aren't going to give out tickets yet. You can only line up at 9 o'clock. If we see you trying to line up, you won't get a ticket at all. So that kind of became chaotic because you literally can't stop people from lining up with this many people. It's not possible. And that's... What happened? People would like hide like behind the pillars or the other side of the Funimation booth, <laughs> and like everyone was just oh like God. out there for like the hunt for that nine <laughs> for that ten o'clock ticket distribution. And when ten o'clock came, chaos ensued because it was just hordes of people all trying to get into this tiny single lane that was inside the Funimation booth. And even how they were letting people in was pretty disorganized because they tried to create a single line, but it didn't really work. So they just like was, were looking around at random people in the cluster and just picking them out to go into the line. So there was no real like wow. structured priority to it, which just made it all the more confusing. And they only had like 150 tickets, so when you have this many people around, obviously you're going to run out. So that's kind of what happened, and I didn't get a autograph ticket unfortunately which uh, I'm fine with but uh it was just like a really really chaotic experience Funimation should not have tried to do this themselves inside the exhibitors hall there is not a space inside that room to handle a crowd of people you know, crowding around one boot. It just destroys traffic. I, I've, I said this last year and I'll say it again. Every single distributor should adopt the Bookwalker system. Online Google Form ticketing. It's easy and simple. Yeah. And 
doesn't create this chaos. And even even it's much healthier for people. Wait, 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 what what is that exactly? For those who don't know. Uh the online ticketing? Yeah. So what Bookwalker does for uh guests is that they'll put up a Google form that you fill out um with like what day you want to have your autograph signing and just all your information and proof of like a book purchase. And then after you submit it, they'll send you an email with your confirmation and at Anime Expo itself, you just go to their booth, show that confirmation, pick up your shishiki board, and then you can just go to the autograph session whenever it is scheduled. So there's no lining up, and you already know before AX itself whether you have an autograph ticket or not. Okay, yeah, that definitely would be much better, I think. Yeah, I would agree. Like, Again, kind of how they did the wristband distribution for Mewtwo and My Hero this year. That is so much more convenient and safer for people than what they did with My Hero 2 Heroes last year. And how, like, we were waiting in that line for hours and vain to try and get into two heroes last year. And, like, with the online ticketing system this year... You know, you don't have to do that. You don't have to wait in line for an event you might not get into. Yeah, and I mean, like, it's even online ticketing isn't perfect. Like, even Bookwalker with uh, the Konosuba Kurone Mishima autograph tickets, the artists of Konosuba, those sold out, like, crazy fast for them online. But even for that, there's, like, various circumstances with, like, she was, like, I think, signing less autographs than an average, like, guest or... And there were, like, less sessions. But even then, you're making it easier for people to get those tickets. And people who won't aren't going to waste their time trying to. Like, it makes it yeah. safer and more realistic for everyone. Yeah, definitely. Like, I would have preferred if all autograph tickets were handled through online distribution. And they, they really should be. There's no reason they shouldn't. I feel like maybe yeah. the reason they have it is that Anime Expo might not have the possible technical infrastructure to set it up, but it's really, you could just do a Google form, and, like, if you mm-hmm. want to get maybe a bit more technical, maybe ensure that uh the people who are filling out the forms have a badge already, or, like... Mm-hmm. They have some sort of verification to know that these people are actually going to be coming to the convention. But mm-hmm. even then, like, it's a much better system, and I wish more people would adopt it. Yeah. Maybe what they did with Mewtwo and My Hero this year was them testing the waters for doing this with more highly anticipated events and autograph ticket distribution in future I years. Mean, yeah, if, if it were up to me, just at least for the main events. Everything in main event hall B should be ticketed. Mm. Yeah. I don't know if everything in main events hall B had the has as much interest as like the big interest stuff. Well I guess like every everything that's large, like I feel trigger panels and trigger yeah. panels should be ticketed at this point. Yeah, that definitely is true. But yeah, there's definitely events you can already guess just based on what it is that the turnout and the demand will be massive. But anyways, while you were trying to get in vain the Okubo autograph tickets, I went to line up for 
the, you know, Promare autograph signings. And I got there pretty on time, like early, and got in line pretty early. Like, there wasn't that many people in front of me, I felt. And I kind of got a little nervous because I didn't really prepare anything to get signed by the Premier team. Like, I was more used to autograph signing events where, like, something was provided for you to get signed. But overhearing and seeing, like, other people with their shashiki boards, I was like, oh, maybe I need something? Will they allow me? I had a sketchbook, but I didn't know if they would allow me to use a sketchbook. So... At some point, I decided to, like, run to the exhibitor's hall and quickly, like, find whatever trigger-related merch I could get, which I ended up getting two wall scrolls and brought it back down with me, by which point you were also in the line. But ultimately, I didn't need to do that because I was able just to get my sketchbook. Yeah, like, they were basically signing anything as long as it wasn't fan art or some show that yeah. the staff members haven't worked on. So, like, I think yeah. the only trouble that some people had was that, uh, Superlog hasn't really worked on, uh, a ton of, like, trigger stuff, I think, yet. I think he's, like, a newer mm-hmm. staff member. So, like, I think when people would try to get, like, kill a kill stuff signed, he wouldn't be able to sign that and he'd have to sign something else. But otherwise, like, they were pretty much signing anything. Yeah, perhaps that was one of the reasons why it went really slowly. So when I returned, I went back into the same spot that I was in. Because, you know, thankfully, the guys who were in front of behind me uh, respected, like, where I was in the line. So they were like, yeah, you can come back to where you were. At first, I thought... Because when you were there, and I saw you there, it, it seemed like there was a second line, and I, that it was shorter. But actually, what was happening was that that line was supposed to snake all the way back around to the end of the first line. Except it didn't really, because the volunteers were being uh, kind of uh, yeah, incompetent. They were a little... <laughs> they were not on the ball with uh, policing that. But anyway, I kind of realized early, like, oh, this is actually the end of the line in total. This is not, like, a new line. So I went back to my original spot. And that was a good decision, because I did end up getting my autographs that day, even though ultimately it took an hour and a half for them to get to me, even though I feel like there were only, like, ten or to a dozen and most people in front of me to begin with, like, the line did move very, very slowly. Yeah. And, like, I think the reason for that for people who haven't, like, been to a trigger signing is that trigger will, like, do full drawings on, like, whatever you have them sign. So, like, I think they were, like, uh, like, Imaishi this year, he was, like, doing drawings of Gallo on, like, uh, people's, like, shishiki boards and objects. And, like, everyone else was doing, like, something else that they had worked on from Promare. Which was really cool, but also way more time-consuming than most signings. Yeah, even though I was pretty near up the line, it took an hour and a half for me to get my autographs. But it was amazing to get personalized drawings from 
the premier team, especially Hiroyuki Imaishi. He drew Leo. It was freaking amazing. I wish I had more words to say to him, like to explain like how much I love his work and how much it inspires me. But you know, I just I just tanked him. I tanked all of them uh, very humbly because it was just amazing to be able to get personalized drawings from these amazing creators. Wait, so who who did uh who did a uh, Koyama draw for you? I do not remember. I left my autographs with you alongside all the other posters and swag from AX. Wait, you did? Where is it? <laughs> I left it with all the other posters on the top of your drawer. Oh crap, I should probably put those in like a safer thing then. Because I haven't even looked at the stuff that you put on top of there. <laughs> oh, safer. That wasn't a safe place? No, like, I mean, it's a safe place, but I don't know. The autographs I should probably put with the other autographs I have. Mm-hmm. Especially since my autographs, because I did not know where to get shishiki boards. Like, I just had them draw from my sketchbook paper, which, you know, it's sturdy paper, so it worked well for, like, their ink marker pens but like uh, in terms of like actually like protecting the drawing necessarily it's probably not as durable or sturdy as a shishiki board yeah like some people brought like full-scale draw pads draw pads wow like like those like uh they're like these thick like drawing boards it was Mm. really weird like they weren't shishikis they were like these like cubic, like, uh, things. They're kind of like canvases, but not canvases. Interesting. You, well, you'd probably looking... know the actual term if I had better, like, better idea of, like, what this stuff is. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, just to explain who drew what, Hiromi Wakabayashi, yeah. I don't know who he drew. Uh, there's some interesting characters I think they might be from a different work than Promare, or maybe they were background characters in Promare. But then Superlog drew the the fire truck, you know, a very chibi, simplified version of the fire truck from Promare. And then Koyama also drew Leo. But also during this autograph signing, they were distributing tickets for another trigger-related kind of autograph sign, like uh, autographs for the directors of the Kill a Kill If game that was like happening pretty much at the same time as this autograph session was going on. So they distributed, like I guess, extra tickets that did, were not given out earlier that day. And we lord, uh, you know asked to have one, and then because, of course, Relord was not going to get his autographs that there, gets through the line as fast as I was going to, he gave me the ticket in order to get the signing, which uh, they signed the Kill a Kill If poster. It was really cool. And, yeah. And also on the subject of, like, getting things signed by the Premier team, I wish I didn't know that they did have something to sign. Like, they had the Premiere poster, so I didn't really need to worry and spend $35 on Kill a Kill Wall Scrolls. Not that I 
necessarily regret buying the Wallace Girls because they're, you know, I like Kill a Kill and I like Wallace Girls, but I didn't need to buy them. But yeah, I mean, that was pretty awesome to get awesome autographs that day from some pretty cool people. And after that, you know, it was around 1130. So Dr. Stone started at 12. So I had to rush over there. And I was confused where to go. Because last year, of course, when we attended events in Hall B, we had to wait outside in a long line. And I thought it would be the same thing this year. So I headed outside, and when I arrived at around, like, 11.40, there was no line. There was no one in the Hall B line for general attendees, and that confused me. I was like, why is there no people? Has everyone already been let inside? That's kind of weird for everyone to be in already. And I asked, like, an AX volunteer where I should line up, uh, where I should go, and they directed me, me to, like, a door that was, like, you know, on the on the side of the room, but that this was still outside. And there were other people waiting there, but I didn't... I don't know if they were waiting there for Dr. Stone or what they were waiting there for. And so I was, like, just waiting there trying to, like, figure out if this was supposed to be the place it was supposed to be, and then, like, someone... Another volunteer peeked out from the door and, like, I asked them, oh, is this the entrance line for press? And they said, yeah, just scan your badge at the badge scanner that was, like, a little bit farther back. So I did that, but, like, it did not ring green, uh, so that confused me. I don't know. I guess this was just, like, a badge scanner for industry or guests, and that's why I wasn't scanning it. But I didn't really understand that or know that. And then I, the volunteer, I guess, didn't really get that either. So they went back inside to, I guess, ask around. But at that point, you, Lord, had texted me, I'm in, you're inside the room. And I was like, wait, how? You left after me. Where, how'd you get in? And you said that literally you just walked in from inside the LACC and there was no line. I was like, oh. So then I just, Walked inside, and sure enough, there's no line for an event in Hall B. I just had to scan my badge and walk in, and it was pretty empty room compared to what I would expect and had expected. And I was very easily able to just get in the room and find you. And I think the big reason... Why that was, of course, is because everyone was trapped outside, all the general <laughs> attendees. So that was why the attendance for the Dr. Stone event, instead of being a full house, which it should have been, because interest in the event was like over 3,500 people. It should have been over capacity in terms of interest. But instead, it was maybe a third full because all the general attendees were still stranded outside. So, that yeah, was interesting. <laughs> yeah, so like, uh, Sakaki, I think you got in there before everyone else. So, when did like you and Jekka like, go to the main hall? For, what was this for? 
Doctor Stone. Doctor Stone. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, yeah. We we actually we we got done with just kind of window shopping. I think uh, Jacob bought a few things, but I was like, I'll come back. And then we came up to eat, and then and it just turned out that where we were eating was right across from where Doctor Stone was. <laughs> So we just like, oh, okay, this works out perfectly. So we had some expensive con food. Also our first experience of that. <laughs> and yeah. then we just finished eating and slipped into Dr. Stone. I mean, they they saw our press badges and didn't really ask us very many questions, so we got right in. And I mean, we did Oh, you're start- pressed. You don't have to go out with the norm. <laughs> the, no, yeah, oh yeah, that's... <laughs> so so Jekyll was calling people normies. <laughs> Oh my god! <laughs> and Very was, quickly, like, drunk uh, power. And like V Lord and I were like, "Oh great, we corrupted her." <laughs> Here's her first AX, and she's corrupted. Because <laughs> like, it's like you've never been to AX. Why are you calling people normies? <laughs> <Bro, my God. laughs> so like, yeah. So, so that's what she was calling them was normies. So. But yeah, we we got into Doctor Stone and we were like, I mean, we we did try to look for you. We we did text you and say, hey, we're in here, and you guys were somewhere else. So we was like, all right, we'll just chill and watch Doctor Stone on our on our end. And so we were. So what happened a lot that day was like we were in the same room, but not in the same place. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so. so like how how I got in there was like after. So basically, like when they realized that the trigger autographs like. They were not going to get to everyone. They let people exchange their autograph tickets for the Saturday session, which is what I did. And then CJ sent me a text um, saying, hey, get to the Dr. Stone panel. And I'm like, okay. So I just like went into there and then found where he was sitting and just sat there. And then, yeah, so like I was on the front right side. But I think you were already in there, but I couldn't find you. So I'm just like, okay, I'll just find them later. And yeah. Yeah. Not, not that that really happened. <laughs> yeah, that that whole day was just kind of us barely missing each other a lot. <laughs> so, and I mean, I felt kind of bad about that. But, like, again, we were kind of just on the move, honestly. Because, I mean, going back to Dr. Stone, yeah, that was something that we both really wanted to do. And... I mean, it was a fun premiere. I actually ended up watching episode one again today, along with two. But, yeah, it was, it was Dr. Stone, and then they had a brief session with, with the, I think the producers of the anime. Mm-hmm. The producer and the, Inagaki's editor. Yeah, producer yeah. and editor, yes. So, I mean, the premiere itself was, it, it was Dr. Stone. If you read the manga, they, they stuck pretty closely to it. Like. No Trump. Yeah. It was like... Oh, yeah, they they took him out. <laughs> oh, they... T- oh, okay. That just shows how much my memory works. <laughs> but, yeah, no, I I wanted... I mean, I guess besides that, which is a pretty big deal, I need to read the manga again. Jeez. <laughs> but, yeah, I mean, the premiere was pretty fun, though. Like, uh, and the, yeah. the, the audience was pretty hyped to see Dr. Stone animated, and, you know, they... And I want to say TMS did a pretty good job with it. I mean, a lot of stuff I really couldn't appreciate, because obviously seeing it on a big screen with a bunch of people versus watching it on a laptop in your kitchen <laughs> is way different. So I definitely got to preach more, appreciate more of the details watching on my own than I did, you know, watching it in there. But the, the, uh, the energy of the audience is really nice, though. Like, everybody yeah. really enjoyed it. 
So, and... Yeah. It was a very enthusiastic crowd. Yeah. Honestly, I really enjoyed watching it in that auditorium just because the sound of Dr. Stone is just so incredible that it really elevates, I felt, the experience of watching it. Like, I also rewatched the episode on my own later, and I just felt like the sheer quality of the sound in that show, that alone makes it feel like a cinematic experience almost, even though the visuals, I feel, don't quite live up to the manga. Yeah, yeah, that was something else I kind of was watching on my own. It's like, it's good, and they did it. I mean, Boichi's artwork, I don't envy them trying to recreate that on a TV budget. I, I don't envy them, and I could totally understand how much work that would be, and they did do a pretty good job, but... Yeah, I mean, definitely if you're going in there for Dr. Stone, you're doing it for the atmosphere, the music, and, you know, the voice acting, which were, they were all perfect, they were all pretty much perfect, but yeah, animation wise, yeah, it, it just couldn't quite capture the manga as well yeah, as. Yeah, it was would actually hope. very conservatively animated, I felt. There weren't a whole lot of really big, animated movements like it yeah. was very simple stuff and i really noticed the moments where they just had characters stay in place or they were just really focusing on like very limited movement of assets on the screen i mentioned this in a review i wrote for all comic on the first episode but the scene where the plane is crashing, that just felt so weightless. It literally felt like they were just sliding the still <laughs> art asset on the screen. And it just, that really felt distracting. It's just but a overall, paper plane and then a big, uh, big pizza explosion. <laughs> <laughs> but overall, I, I really think the strength of the show are the performances, the music. Again, the sound of the show is, is a triumph. And uh, is definitely trumps the visuals, for sure. Yeah, I mean, the the thing for me that made me really happy was the pacing, of course, because, like, you kind of got into this trend of, like, a lot of the Shonen Jump adaptions only adapting the first chapter, or sometimes less. But for Dr. Stone, it adapted, like, I think two or three chapters. Like, it really felt like they were thinking about how it would work better as a TV series rather than mm-hmm. just, like, trying to cut up the manga into just, like, 13 or, like, 25 episode type thing. Yeah, it ended kind of at the place I expected it to, because just the hook of, you know, them finding the cure to set the people entrapped in stone free, I thought would be a great closer for the first episode. So I'm glad that they did do that and not split up the first two chapters into two different episodes. I think the pacing is very on point. Yeah. And in the second episode, we've already got, you know, Sakasa introduced. We've already got the idea that the central conflict is going to be between Senku and Sakasa and their different philosophies on who should be revived and who should be saved. So, you know, they're going through the show at a good pace, I think. Yeah, which is interesting because it's not like they don't have a lot of episodes. It's a two-course series. But, like, it seems like they really are trying to make things, like, interesting from the get-go instead of, like, slowly, like, seeping into it, which is kind of cool to see. 
It's certainly not Black Clover painting. Yeah. <laughs> At least Black Clover at the beginning. Which it took, jeez, like 20 episodes to get through two volumes. Well, but anyway, I do think that the entire run of this season of Doctor Stone is going to end at the end of the Stone Wars. It's going to end with, you know, the the resolution between the conflict of Senku and Sikasa's factions. So that's something to look forward to. And I definitely think, you know, they can cover like that 80 chapters worth of material within this time span they have. Okay. I was just going to say that I definitely need to sit down with the manga again. I, I don't remember where I left off because I was reading it on the jump app before they started having bookmarks. So I, I, I just read it over from the beginning at this point just to kind of keep in touch with the, the keep in stride with the, the anime adapt, adaptation. But so far, watching the first two episodes, yeah, I think, I mean, definitely, like I said, if you're going into it looking for well-animated, you know, well, I, yeah, that sounds kind of rude. <laughs> it's competently animated. I'm not going to say it's bad, but if you're going in there expecting something that looks as good and lush as the manga, probably not. This isn't Tetsu no Yaiba. Yeah, it, it's definitely a thing that's more for the experience of just seeing these characters, you know, hear, hearing them than it is expecting something, you know, Basically, expecting the manga in animated format, so you're not you're not going to get that. But it's definitely the experience and the characters definitely make it worth it. I definitely would mm-hmm. recommend people who aren't watching Doctor Stone on Crunchyroll, which Crunchyroll is really pushing this. Like, yeah, I mean, they have the master license, so they might as well because they spent a lot of money. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the panel was hosted by Crunchyroll. Crunchyroll's logo is in the show. They made a customized, like, intro logo for Crunchyroll that plays at the beginning of every Doctor Stone episode, where it's like the Crunchyroll logo is, like, kind of in stone, and it, like, rises up from, like, a cityscape that has been ruined because it's been degraded in the stone world. You know, it's they're really pushing it as, like, one of their flagships for the foreseeable future. But, yeah, I mean, I think they are well advised to be so in tune and to promote Dr. Stone so highly, because I do think it's going to get big. And even if the adaptation, I don't feel the animation is the best, I do enjoy watching it. And I really enjoy the premiere a lot. Yeah, I mean, it seems like anime-only fans are liking it a lot. It's, like, one of the highest-rated, like, like shows for this season on, like, most of the aggregator sites. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I, I think that's a good sign. Most definitely. So, during the Crunchyroll premiere, and I, you know, we could probably go more in depth into, like, all the stuff they talked about during the interview part, but I kind of wrote about that on the the blog, and we also need to get to many delays worth of events, so I think we'll keep discussion of every event relatively brief. But during the event, you know, that's when Wheeler and I met up with CJ... We met up with some other people as well. Uh, and then after that, when we exited, that's when we met up with uh, Laser. And then uh, Laser and Wheelord and I, we went to the Viz panel, which was in progress. And Dr. Stone let out a little early, actually. It was supposed to be an hour event. I think it let out like at 1245. 
But yeah. by the time we were let out of Dr. Stone, this, this thing had started, and they'd already gone through all their manga announcements, including Blue Flag. You know, we'll go through all the, the new stuff, I'm sure, at a later date, but, like, the and the license of Blue Flag in particular was like, oh my god, this is so exciting, I'm so happy. That was insane, especially especially since, like, there's kind of been some uncertainty with how exactly those Manga Plus licenses work. So, like, it's I'm kind of glad that Viz is doing the volume releases, because then we'll get a better translation, and I think a lot more love is going to be put into it. I mean, Marlene is going to be editing it, and Marlene has been a fan and has been pushing it for years, so yeah, it's in like, good isn't hands. Isn't one of Marlene's pets named after a Blue Fly character? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but that's amazing. <laughs> I mean, yeah, so you can tell that a lot of love is going to go into it. Shout out to Toma. But yeah, so, you know, it's also going to be handled by same team as Astra. So Annalise, I think, is going to be the letterer on it as well. So it's a dream team, basically. 10 out of 10 production right there. Basically. But yeah, so they had finished their manga announcements, but we were able to, you know, get into the panel. Because, again, because everyone was trapped outside, what should have normally (laughs) been a full house, I... (laughs) My perception of it was that it was less than half full. There was a lot of room in there. We were able to just walk in 20 minutes into the panel. Yeah, we got, like, halfway up. Like, it's not like there was. we had to sit all the way in the back. Yeah. We got really close up. Yeah. I really felt like, again, this, this panel, under normal circumstances, it would have been one of the more highly attended panels, but because of... You know, the whole people being trapped outside. It, it was not a full house as it was in previous years, which was very surprising. But, you know, I guess it's expected because of how badly they handled the lights. But in any case, we sat through, you know, uh, the this panel from that point on, and they brought up Joey the Anime Man. Ah, right, right. I mean, he was uh, a good host, and he asked some good questions to the team behind Viz's new Netflix original series, Say Manos. They brought on some crew for that, and they. I, what I really loved is that they showed the animatic of a clip from the show that kind of was the very rough drawings, really just showing, like, how they were working out through the timing choreography. And then afterwards, they showed, like, the finish clip. And I always love seeing a difference between the process and then the finished product. So that was really awesome to see. Yeah, plus, that show looks really good. Like, I hadn't, like, really heard of it before this. But yeah, I, I'm. it's definitely on my radar now. It's kind of cool that, uh, Viz is doing a uh, production with Netflix of all places. Yeah. Viz is definitely getting into a lot more markets now. They're making their own games, and now they're making their own animated series, and they're making their own manga, so very, very cool. And Seimano really looks very promising. I really appreciate, like, an action show with a diverse cast. Uriah Brown described it in a really funny way, which I don't remember the quote off the top of my head, but 
there's like a little bit of John Woo and John Carpenter and all sorts of these really awesome action references. And like he was saying, you know, this is what the, the show reminds me of. And the producer was like, well, I don't know how to respond to that, but yeah, totally. So that was really nice. But Stay Mono was like the big thing I remember from our time at the Vizboot. I don't remember what else we saw while we were there. Do you remember at the I panel? I don't think they really showed anything else. They promoted uh, Castlevania. Mm-hmm. I think of the people who were working on Seimanos had also worked on uh, Castlevania. Because yeah, yeah. uh, Joey was asking questions about Castlevania because he's a big Castlevania fan. Right, right. Yeah, they did talk about Castlevania. They showed the season two trailer. Again, and that that was also really nice to hear about, you know, the team behind Powerhouse, behind both Castlevania and Seimanos, like, their thoughts on their series, and I was really interested in learning about that, and I am interested in watching Seimano when it comes out. Like, I can't wait for that. But yeah, I think that was about it from the Viz panel. And then we kind of ran over to Yen Press, because that started right when the Viz panel ended. And we ended up making our way in, even though it was past the time the panel started. And it was actually a full house, because it was a smaller room that only seated 450 people. Because we were press, we were able to get in, and uh, there were some stray seats lying around. You know, we had to sit next... We couldn't sit next to each other, but we sat separately. You sat a little bit towards the back wheeler, and I sat a little towards the front, and then we just sat through, like, the Yen Press licenses, which was, well, in their own words, or... Rather, I think Debowicki commented on this later, that there was a lot of booby manga that they announced during the Yen Press panel. Yeah, they, they really liked that uh that lewd manga right there. Yeah. Though they uh, also announced two Persona 5 manga that two days ago, at the time of this recording, very recently, they said, uh, actually, we don't have the licenses to these. Uh, are oh, bad. Right, right. Okay, yeah, that was a... what? What happened? <laughs> uh, it's just that they corrected the two manga that they were announced. Like they don't have the rights to publish the Persona Five manga that they had announced at that panel that they had licensed. So Memento's Mission and A La Carte, they don't have the publishing rights to those series yet. I think they were in negotiations for those and. I guess they might have had a miscommunication somewhere where they thought that they had finalized the deal, but ultimately they uh, they did not have the rights to that yet. I feel like by, by the fact that they announced it, they probably destroyed the deal. Probably. So that was very interesting. So Yen Press announced like, ten series, uh, excluding the 
Persona 5 stuff that, again, I'm sure we'll talk about in our news roundup. Because if we talk about all the news during this recording, it's going to go on for double the length. And we still have so much to get through. But, yeah, suffice to say, in terms of manga announcements this year, every publisher brought out tons of stuff to announce and talk about. Anime Expo always seems to kill us and we report on the news for this stuff. Yeah, Yen Press managed to get through all their announcements, though, in 20 minutes. And then after that, it was just Q&A. More like cringe-and-A. Yeah, very not good questions. I don't remember all the One was like, what is your favorite underrated manga? And they just mentioned Yen Press titles that I don't feel were underrated. I'm pretty sure one of the responses was, have you heard of that time I was reincarnated as a slime? <laughs> like, you know, it's not... It was stuff like that. It was like, they were... Or, have you heard of Spice and Wolf? Like, stuff that is popular. Oh it's God. not underrated. You know, they so they weren't, like, really able to give... Literally, after the first question in there, I just left. Like, I think the first she <laughs> yeah. asked a... Asked a question about a Konosuba spinoff light novel that they hadn't licensed yet. It's from the sounds of it. It didn't sound like it even existed. Or, like, I don't know if it existed. This spinoff about Veneer or whatever. The, some demon guy. Like, is that a real thing? Because from the sounds of it, it was like, was it just supposed to be a joke at the end of the Megumin novel? I think it was supposed to be. <laughs> Yeah, so it's like this guy was had misinterpreted that this was an actual thing that existed, and they were trying to explain it was not a real thing. It was very confusing, and again, it was just like those questions about Mega Man Zero at the Indie Creates panel. It was like, oh my god, do your research, dudes. Please, these are embarrassing questions. But yeah, you left, you got out of the room before me because you were sitting at the back. And then I left soon after, but by that point you had, I don't know where you went, but I, we were supposed to meet up for lunch, but then it was, I was like, you know, I need to go back to first. And I said, oh, and then you said, oh, let's just meet up later. And I was like, fine. So yeah, I went and got lunch. I think I perused the, I did go to the exhibitors hall briefly. And tried to get stuff of the Viz boot, but they had sold out of, like, almost everything. Uh, even the bags they had run out of, like the gift bags they give out with purchases they didn't have. No, I think I was able to get, like, the t-shirts, like the Sailor Moon and Shonen Jump shirts that day, but that was about it. After that, and, like, maybe picking up some freebies from some of the boots, I just went to Mewtwo Strikes Back. Yeah, so like dur during that time when we split up, I went to go get ramen at the uh, outside. Uh, so at Anime Expo, of course, they have like all the food stalls outside the convention center to conserve space. And the line for ramen was insane. But I'm like, okay, I have time. Yeah. This will clearly go pretty fast. I'll just wait in line. <laughs> that was a terrible idea. Honestly. I feel bad for anyone who tries to get food at Anime Expo, because it is a nightmare. I know, like, uh, CJ and I make a joke about, like, how he forgets to eat at AX or, like, chooses not to eat. And you could literally go to this con and not eat, because there's so much to do, and whenever you try to eat, 
the line to actually get food is so long that it's usually not worth it. You know, I got food from the barbecue stall like a couple times during this con, and the line for that was not too bad either time I went. But also, the food at the barbecue stall was not the best either. Yeah, I know which one you're talking about, too. That one's, like, kind of average, but, yeah, you can usually get the food relatively fast there. Yeah, that chicken sandwich, not great. Very messy. Very lame. Fries, not the best either. So, you know, if you want something quick, I guess, eat there, but... It's $15 for mediocre food. If you're a priority entrance person, like press or exhibitor or something, your best bet is probably just leaving the convention center and going near the Hollywood Bowl or, like, the LA Live area and getting something there and then just coming back in. But if you're a general attendee, that's not really an option because the line to get back in is ridiculous. Hmm. Yeah. Not great food options at AX, and they say they have over 40 trucks, but, like, I feel it's only 10. They were they were promoting, oh, we have all this food this year, and I didn't see any of it. Yeah, it where is like it? It the exact same stuff from last year. It really did. So that confused me. Launch options, not great this year. Not doesn't seem to be great anywhere in the LACC. But, yeah, I think we all reconvene for Mewtwo Strikes Back. But... Before we get to that, uh, Sakaki, was there anything that uh, you did uh, between Dr. Stone and Mewtwo you wanted to talk about? Uh, I mean, again, we were, like, in the same room with you, because I remember during the Viz, they actually announced the Kirby art book, too. Uh, we were there for yeah, that. Yeah, that's right, that's right. So we saw that, and we were actually at the Yen Press panel, too, and we, so we got to hear some of the cringy questions. <laughs> <laughs> and, um... I'm trying to think what we did after, because, you know, we kept thinking we would meet up with you guys, but then it was like every time, it's either you left before us, or we just didn't see you. Yeah. I'm trying to remember what we did between that and you two. I don't know if we went, I think we probably went back to the dealer's room, but I'm not sure. I think we did. We went back for a little bit, then we were like, okay, we should probably head over to got you guys to see and catch up with you and Mewtwo. And I mean, generally speaking, since again it was Jekka's first um Jekka's first um uh AX, like I just wanted to kind of show her like she had her plan and I mean basically for me I don't really go to cons to like do things, which I know is kinda of, many people <laughs> told me to be like, that's a weird reason to go to cons. I mostly go to just meet people. Which oddly at this year's AX I didn't really do much of. Like I miss CJ really completely. Was, to do it. Yeah. yeah, I miss CJ completely. And even the other day, just yesterday, I was talking to Yonko, and he was like, "Yeah, it kind of, it kind of sucks that we weren't able to at least talk." <laughs> so, because he was there, I mean, yeah, I tried hunting down Yonko too, and I never got around to it. Though, like, the yeah. lucky thing with him though is that he's in LA for an entire month, so uh. I can still do that. But like. <laughs> Yeah, that was. Anyone make... else I tried to find at AX was just chaos. Like, I think out of everyone besides Sid, obviously, I saw probably you and Jekka the most. Yeah. But CJ, yeah. I barely saw. I saw him like twice, maybe. And then anyone else, I maybe saw like just a passing glance of. 
Yeah, because I remember yeah. like you took a picture of Jekka and I wearing like matching colors, and um, he CJ like commented with a sad face, <laughs> and, and I was just like, I wasn't sure about what to take that as. <laughs> I felt so bad for CJ because he really wanted to see you. Like, yeah, he, he was that... really looking forward to seeing you, and then like. Amalasi yeah. is like, where's Sakaki? I need to find Sakaki. I felt bad about it. Like, and even the last day, we really didn't go. I mean, I know we're skipping ahead, but since we didn't really go the last day, I guess I don't have much to comment on there anyway. But yeah, last day we really didn't go because we both got up really super late, and then we're just like, ah, do we really? We still got to pack. We still got to do this, do that. Do we really want to drag ourselves down there? And I felt bad leaving because I was like, at least we should say goodbye. And Jekka did too. She was like, we were both thinking, oh, we should at least go say goodbye to V Lord at least and look for him and say, you know, t- maybe take a picture together. But I mean, we went to eat, bre- eat breakfast and did all that stuff, and then by the time we were doing that, we we're like, ah, it wouldn't be worth going. And then we realized we had plenty of time to, so it was kind of a. But yeah, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. But yeah, it was just <laughs> super difficult to meet up with. Even some of the people that I had planned to see, I didn't run into any of them. So it was like, yeah, like I really wanted to find like uh, Jeff Rudberg and uh, Brandon yeah. uh, Brovia. Brovia, and like. I don't even know where a lot of those people are, like, most of the day. Because, like, there's so many people now that even if you try to, like, coordinate with someone to meet up, it's so hard because there's not really a good place to meet up. Yeah, exactly. And there's, like, I mean, I guess it's kind of a good thing that there's so much to do, but... At the same time, it makes it that much harder to sync up schedule. Because, like, last year, I met up with people by mistake most of the time. <laughs> it wasn't even like I was really particularly looking for people. They were just, like, there was just... I don't know if there was less to do or just better coordinated. Maybe it was that. But, like, anybody just hit me up on DM on Twitter last year and said, Hey, I'm here. I could usually go find them easily. <laughs> and it was... I mean, that's how I met up with Nate. I met up with Nate, Jeff... And I think I might have met up with Brandon. I don't know. I remember there was one guy that literally I just talked to him for like two seconds, and then, you know, we went our separate ways. And I think that might have been Was him. it like the Vizrep guy? Or... There was one guy with Yonko on the first day, and he gave me his card. So it might that might have been him. But yeah, definitely I had actual dinner with Jeff and Nate and one other guy. So that, and that was like wild, <laughs> but like this year I didn't meet up with any, like really any industry people or anybody again, other than really you and Sid and even you and Sid, we were, again, we kept being in the same room, but not really seeing each other. But yeah, we yeah. didn't, even in Mewtwo, we went to Mewtwo, but we weren't sitting with you guys. So, and again, I wrote a bit about Mewtwo on for the, the Sunday blog. So I guess now we're getting into Mewtwo. Um, it, it was, I, my, my write-up was more about how Shogakukan and Pokemon have been kind of connected through the years, and that's something maybe people don't realize, is that Shogakukan actually has a pretty big holding on most Nintendo properties. Like, if you've heard <laughs> of the Splatoon manga, that's Shogakukan. They've actually yep. done, I, I don't know if it was, they've, a lot of, even some American video games, and I'll have to check this for sure. Even a lot of video American video games or overseas video games, overseas from Japan, that get manga usually do it through Shogakukan. There's actually a super huge and super long Mario manga and Kirby manga. Yeah, Super Mario, yeah. Too, right? Yes, that's through Shogakukan. 
And most times when people get Pokemon news and leaks, it's from Koro Koro Comics, which is published by Shogakukan. So there's actually the Pokemon and Shogakukan um, link has been it's been a thing since Pokemon was in its infancy. In fact, a lot of big franchises like Doraemon are through Shogakukan. So that was more what I wrote it from an angle. I mean, I did mention for the Pokemon for Mewtwo that I did mention, you know, that yes, they, one thing that they were trying to do that they did kind of hint at is that they are trying to make more of a Jap, uh, the Japanese version of Pokemon have more of a presence here. Obviously they didn't straight up say, yeah, we're going to start subbing. They're going to start showing sub movies now, guys. So it's real now. No, they didn't say it that way, but they did kind of acknowledge that, yes, people are interested in the Japanese version, and yes, we would like to show more of, you know, we're we're definitely shooting for it. I mean, for Mewtwo itself, yeah. it was a good first effort, but, I mean, the translations were kind of off, which is what I was talking to Je- Jekka about. Yeah. The translations were kind of off for the subs, and, like, I'm not yeah. talking about in the sense that they use the U.S. names for the characters in the Pokémon. I mean, I kind of expected that going in. I didn't think that they'd actually... And fine now, the the names have become part of a cultural awareness that I don't see... Mm -hmm. Even if they start releasing Pokemon stuff subbed, I don't think that the name changes are going to go away. I think most people are so used to them that that won't really bother them much. So I'm talking from an actual script dialogue um, translation thing. And yeah, a lot of the translations were off. So, one question I do have about that then is... Do you remember that part at the end where, like, Mewtwo's talking about, like, like the clones in the originals and, like, how, like, in the subs it's saying, like, it's about, like, self-identity or something, but yeah. in the original version, it's about, like, the originals being the better versions? In yeah. the Japanese dialogue, is it still the originals being the better versions than the clones? Uh, like, m- specifically, like, Mew's line. Like, in this film, Mew's line is like, it doesn't matter who is original or clone. Like, it's what's inside the heart that counts. But in the original film, like, in the J- original Japanese version of the film, Mew's line is like, no, the, the originals are better than the clones. The clones are abominations or something like that. So, uh, like, what did Mew actually say to Mew too? Um, I'm thinking back on it, and I feel like... I feel like they did sort of change the message a little. Of course, it'd be nice if I had the movie in front of me to kind of just zip through it real quick. But it did sound like, and of course, I don't remember the original that well either, because I literally saw it in theaters when it was new. That's the first and only time I saw it. <laughs> so <laughs> I I do think that they did change the message a little bit. Not much. I do think that some of the translations did try to kind of make it sound a little less like, hey, you guys are the clones and you're trash and the originals are where it's at. <laughs> I mean, they did try to... I, did, I do feel like the Japanese script tried to change that a little bit, but not as much as the translation sort of implied. Yeah. The translation... The subtitles in this movie at times use direct quotes from the original English dub of the movie. Yeah. Most famously, the iconic line from the dub, I see now that the circumstances of one's birth are irrelevant. Like, that <laughs> is worth the same in the subtitles. Yeah, yeah, there was there yeah. was a lot of that, too. So, I mean, I kind of wonder, I don't know, like, clearly there was some impetus for them to say, hey... Here's a Pokemon movie. We should show a sub. 
And I mean, I don't know so much that um, I'm not sure what they were going for with this. If they were just going for the fact that we want to test the waters, see if people are interested in more sub Pokemon, I would say this was not really a great effort towards that. I mean, like, definitely the fact that Matsumoto Rika was there, we had Sakakibara and um, Yuyama there, and they had their commentary, and they definitely put an effort towards that. And it was great seeing them there, and Matsumoto Rika doing the first Pokemon opening live, and that was great fun, and the mm. and again, the audience was really into it, and even Matsumoto was, like, moved to tears, saying that she, you know, she's so happy that, whether it's Ash or Satoshi, that people are here, you know, enjoying Pokemon, so it was real, that, all that, I mean, the atmosphere, that was great, but the movie itself, I mean, well... Like I said, from the presentation standpoint of them bringing the subs over, and even we had the mem, the jelly donut mem. <laughs> yeah, was that actually in the Japanese dialogue? No, or... in the in the original Japanese, he's just mentioning only Gary. Yeah, this is they... like a joke that they added in for the <laughs> subtitle script. Of like with the subtitle script, I think they wanted to keep in things that they think the American audience are just were attached to and or keep in in jokes that they thought would be a good fun wink for the American audience. Yeah, I feel like the so jelly donut This was not Yeah. Yeah, no, I feel like, like the that, jelly The jelly donut thing sounded like that was that was made in the script as a joke yeah. because they knew the yeah. American audience would yeah, find that funny. I agree with I agree with Sid there. I don't think that that was purposely kept in there as oh, they won't know what Onigiri is. I feel like they know the people who grew up with the original movie are probably at an age now where they would see that and just be like, "Oh, we get it. It's a wink and a nod." We need to put in the memes. Yeah, they need to do that. And I mean, even keeping the Pokemon's nicknames from the original that the other trainers had, you know, that was kind of a nice wink and a nod, too. But yeah, part, it definitely. Part of me feels that this is just literally the dub script. And they just copy and pasted it as, like, the subtitles. I would not be surprised if that's the case. Well, I don't think this is the dub script because there are. Many moments in this film where the script is much closer to what the original Japanese version is. Most famously, the scene between Meowth and his clone, where, like, it's not as didactic about going over the the movie's message again. They're, like, just talking about, you know, oh, those claws will hurt, and then I'm not gonna, I don't want to fight because those claws are hurt. And then they look up at the moon, and they're just commenting, wow, the moon is really full tonight. You know, in the original dub, it's like, oh, wow. I wonder if we spent all this time, you know, thinking about how we share the same moon, like, and the world is the same, you know, we don't have to fight, it, you know, they, it's not as, like, on the nose in the subtitles, it's closer to the Japanese script, where it's like, you know, that's still the same idea, like, they're both appreciating the moon, and it's supposed to make you think that, yeah, you know, I mean, these characters live in the same world, and, like, that that's the entire point of the movie, is that, like, you know, clones, originals, they're all living creatures, and so they shouldn't, they can all exist in this world. They don't need to fight for dominance. They don't need to kill each other to prove anything that they're more worthy of existing. They're all worthy of existing by simply being alive, and that's the miracle of life. And then, of course, the dub famously changed that to this fighting is wrong message a lot more simplified a lot more generalized in a way that doesn't make sense because pokemon uh a large part of what we follow ash's journey in the show it's about fighting and then they started playing brother by brother 
Yeah, that they, there's no my brother, my brother in this Zero my brother. I literally saw a tweet by someone who was complaining that there was no my brother, my brother. Brother, tell me what provided for. Why? <laughs> But yeah, I I, no. I do I do think generally speaking, like I wouldn't I agree with Sid that it's not it wasn't a complete lift of the dub, but definitely they kind of kept some of the dub conventions in it. I don't I, I mm-hmm. overall I get I appreciate the effort, but I do hope if they are going to continue giving us Pokemon movies that they treat it a little bit more like okay, I get that Nintendo. I'm sure that Nintendo had their hands in this a bit, and they're still of the mind that nobody's going to understand this thing because you definitely Pokemon has been move kind of been moving towards being more of a worldwide product than a Japanese one. So I wouldn't be surprised if some of those those edits were made by them saying that okay, yeah, we have to. I'm sure there's there's a Pokemon style bible out there that says we have to do these things for any release of that's Pokemon related, whether the audience will get it or not, this is what it is. Yeah. I mean, if like, if Pokemon international's involvement with like auditing the Pokemon adventures, like released by this is any indication, they are very particular about how they want Pokemon to be presented. But that's the thing. I don't know how much involvement Pokemon international had with this screening. Because they did not promote it at all on their Twitter at all. And that is very telling to me that it's like, this was just done on the Japanese side of the Pokemon company in terms of organizing this event and setting it with Anime Expo. And that the American side of the Pokemon company was like, just not involved or like, was because they did not promote it, and, like, I kind of can tell with some things that the Pokemon company does that if they do not approve of something or if they have issue with something, that they don't give it attention. Like, that's what kind of happened with the Twitch streams of Pokemon earlier this year. Whereas with the original stream of the first nine seasons last year, you know, they very heavily promoted it. Like, when it returned to Twitch for seasons 10 through 19 earlier this spring... Like, the Pokemon Company, no press release, no tweets about it. Like, you would not know about it from their Twitter or any of their accounts. Like, they were not talking about it. Like, you had to find that out by getting an email from Twitch itself that, oh, Pokemon's going to be back. We're doing Season 10 through 19. And so this feels like the same way. Like, the fact that the Pokemon Company... English side was so silent on this and did not acknowledge this was happening at all really feels to me like this was all on the Japanese side and they're they were doing this like without really that much help or involvement from the Pokemon company and I also feel like because very famously it has been said that the the Japanese side of the production team, like, they did like the English dub of the original movie. They liked some of the changes to the message and some of the lines from the original movie. I wouldn't be surprised if they made this kind of amalgamized subtitle script for this screening, keeping in the things they liked from the original dub, like the lines they liked, but then, you know, rewriting and keep the parts that, you know, they thought were straying too far and keeping it closer to the original Japanese. And that's all speculation on my part, but to me it seemed very interesting 
like just some of the circumstances behind how the event was promoted and run. Uh, so very interesting. Yeah, like the translator who was there, like I don't think he was representing like any specific organization either, which was kind of yeah. a telling point. Because like aside from that Pokemon Go promotion, there wasn't really anything Pokemon branded there. Yeah, like no promotion of the dub or any of anything else. Like, if you think if the Pokemon company Ingleside was involved, you'd think they'd, you know, talk about, oh, the dub is going to be coming soon. Get excited for that. But nothing along that sort. Like, no. Go check out Sun and Moon on Disney XD. No (laughs) representatives from from the dub side of the Pokemon company, so. Very, so that was, that was something curious to me. So I'm very interested, I'm going to be interested to see how the dub for this movie turns out, whether it follows along the script that we saw with, you know, the AX screening, or if they really keep it close to what the, you know, original dub was, or even maybe they'll change it completely from the original dub and Still, it'll be different from the sub. Who knows how the Pokemon I Company mean, Sid, USA Sid, will do it. If they make it. any changes, they better add brother by brother. I I fully expect them in the dub to keep brother by brother. I think just because, again, it's just something I guess people who grew up with the dub associate with the movie too much. But I would prefer they do not keep that corny song that really... I don't know, it doesn't really fit with, again, what the team of the movie is supposed to be. But It's so funny. It's, it's really funny. Again, that's another reason why they shouldn't keep it. It's too funny because of how corny it is in a scene that is supposed to be painful and heart-wrenching because these Pokemon are kill- literally trying to kill each other. Gyarados is biting another Gyarados's neck. It's It's not supposed to be funny. It's supposed to be really emotionally sad. But, you know, as far as my overall thoughts on the movie, uh, you know, I, again, I, I think my experiences, my perception of it is very heavily influenced by the fact that we attended this if, momentous event of a screening. Like, the first time Pokemon has been shown subbed in any form in an official capacity in North America that was attended by the director of the anime, uh, Rika Matsumoto. To me, it's such a, it was such an event that it, that definitely elevates the film in my eyes more than I think it would be if I had seen it in any other context. But that said, you know, as someone who liked the original film and also thinks that the core of that story is good, I really still enjoyed the execution of this movie. I think that actually I really liked a lot of how they did the CG in this movie. I thought the character designs were really Good. I thought the character acting was really good uh, in terms of how the models were able to be expressive and move. Like in t- the original film, in terms of the actual animation, it all, it does feel more limited than this remake does in terms of like the fluidity of movement. Which isn't to say I don't think there were some problems with the animation. I do think that uh, some of the animation in the remake has is a little floaty. But overall, I thought it was really well made and as a, you know, and full feature length CG effort. 
they were definitely trying to be experimental with it, and I really appreciated some of the sweeping, like, cinematic shots they did. Like, that sweeping shot through the arena where it's, like, showing all the Pokemon fighting their clothes, and it's this one continuous shot that's going around the entire arena. Really cool stuff. Like, what they did with the camera work in this film, I thought it was very impressive and cool. Yeah, I'm really happy that they didn't just make this, like, a one-to-one adaption of the original film. They actually yeah, kind of took advantage all. of the 3D space. Mm-hmm. Um, one one scene I really liked was the one where every all the trainers are like going into the ocean to get to like the island. Like yeah. they kind of really like show off like all these different Pokemon doing different animations in the water, or, like flying over the water, and it's just really well done. And the water and fire effects in this film are super good. Like, that's really difficult to animate convincingly and, like, really ferociously, but they really sold it. And I, I thought that was really incredible. Like, the effects, mechanical animation, I definitely think are really, really strong highlights of the film. And then I found that even detractors uh, seem to agree that those are really impressive. But, you know, I have seen the reaction from people who, who have, you know, seen it from the Japan release now and it's definitely more mixed from from the critics that you know i follow who i really value for their pokemon opinions like dogasu and kanapa and they're they're definitely more on the negative side in terms of their interpretation of the film wait kanapa's on the negative side oh yeah he gave like the the film like a d like the story part of the film because like you know i understand like why you feel that way because it it is like just a remake of the film that doesn't add anything narrative-wise, and I can understand, like, without the special context of seeing it at the Anime Expo screening and just seeing it at regular movie theater Japan, this idea of, like, why make this, why is this special, what is the point? But for me, I thought that it was a really valuable artistic endeavor in terms of trying to remake an old story using new techniques and seeing what they can do with it. And that's kind of what Yuyama and uh, Saki Ibarra were talking about and when asked why they wanted to make this film. is like they wanted to use new technology and new animation techniques to like try and improve upon the uh, production of the original film. And I still like how the original film looks, but I would say that I think this version of the film is even more polished, and I, you know, it's really hard to beat nostalgia, but like, I might say that just in terms of like piece of quality animation and filmmaking, this might be the better version, like divorced from like the context in which you watched it in. Uh, cause I really do think the animation in this film and the cinematography directing was very impressive, but. Yeah, I I like the screening a lot. I like the film. I do think in future films, I would prefer them to go back in the direction that uh, Power of Us did in terms of standalone Pokemon stories that are still, like, different from the normal formula that the films used to follow of, like, there's this legendary Pokemon and uh, Mystic Quest, say the world, all that stuff. But, you know, I think uh, I, in terms of making more CG Pokemon films and works, I think this was a great effort and i'd love to see more films in in this style uh, that are not just direct remakes but uh 
Yeah, I mean, just that experience of that panels and screening was amazing. Like, Rika Matsumoto singing Mazaze Pokemon Master. I mean, that alone, just experiencing that live, made that entire day one of, like, the most memorable highlights of my life. To be there, uh, to see Rika Matsumoto perform live in L.A. and Anime Expo was amazing. So... That was truly special to me as a longtime Pokemon fan. And, yeah, I mean, that they would, uh, you know, consider doing more events like this, bringing more of the Japanese Pokemon over here. And they were agreeable to that. They said, you can count on it. And so that was so exciting to hear. And I really hope that they do. I I want to see uh, the future film subtitled, even if they only are able to be distributed in cons, but maybe, you know, with the interest shown at the Anime Expo screening, which was a full house, and, you know, hopefully that will convince the U.S. branch of the Pokemon Company, hey, give us the subtitled version of Pokemon over here in the U.S. No more dub-only DVD releases. Yeah, I feel like if anyone can convince Pokemon International to really kind of start bringing out the original Japanese version over here, it's going to be the Japanese side. And I think this is the first stepping stone for that. Like, showing them that, hey, there is a demand for this. This isn't going to hurt the Pokemon brand by showing this original Japanese version. Definitely. I mean, hey, Digimon has been available in subtitle form for years. There's no reason why Pokemon can't. Yu-Gi-Oh! has been available in subtitle form for years. There's no reason why Pokemon can't as well. And, man, wouldn't it be amazing if, like, Sword and Shield was, like, the first Pokemon series to get simulcast in Japanese? That would be so good. Like, I always hear, like, all the great animation stuff about Pokemon Sun and Moon, but because it's not available legally, I just don't have the incentive to go find it. it is available legally. Well, the the Japanese version, because I I don't really want to watch the dub. The dub is fine. (laughs) You know, I rewatched all of Pokemon up to Sun and Moon dubbed on the Twitch streams, and you know what? The dub is good. I like the dub. It doesn't compare to the... Japanese for me, just because, again, Rika Matsumoto's performance as Satoshi is just so good. I mean, Sid, if I'm not getting a Rika, then what's the point? I need Rika Matsumoto. Well, honestly, the main thing that's superior about the Japanese version is the music, because, especially watching the Kalos finals, man, like, not having the insert of Let's Go really robs so much energy from those battles and so much hype for the battles but like yeah the music i think is the main thing i would really want them to retain in the dub and the sub if they bring it over here like keep the insert song to at least dub the insert song to at least instrumental is the same because the original music that the dub creates never as good as the japanese score but regardless new two strikes back evolution definitely the highlight of my con experience for me as just a longtime Pokemon fan, as someone who had been looking forward to this more than anything else at the at the con, that this was really special to me. And uh, after that, though, we also attended another special event, Vlord and I. We went to the North American premiere of Kingdom at the Regal LA Live. Okay, how was that? 
That was something I wanted to go to, but it was just like energy was gone, so... <laughs> yeah, like, I remember mentioning it to you and Jekka, like, hey, they sent out this, like, press invitation, you should, like, go email the PR guy to uh, get your tickets, and I think, like, you guys just, like, were too tired. Yeah, no, we were we were really dead. Again, it was just, oof, that walking the day before. I, I mean, I, I guess, in a way, it was just kind of like, I guess we bit off more we could chew walking all around the other day. But yeah, I mean, but how was Kingdom, though? That is something, I know Funny's got it, so they'll probably release it on home video eventually, and I'm definitely going to check that out. But I know you were talking about how great it was when you were telling us about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, Wheeler, do you want to take away the, the Kingdom screening? Do I have to? Um, okay. The Kingdom screening was kind of weird, because for those who saw, like, uh, Funimation's initial, like, press release with all their events at Anime Expo, they had Kingdom on there, but they said it was for uh, select ticket holders only. And for a while we were wondering, okay, so it's going to be a ticketed event. Where are the tickets? And they never ended up, like, uh, distributing the tickets online or really promoting it at all. And then I think it was the day before the convention started, Funimation sent out this email to everyone who had press and saying, like, hey, um, you're all invited to the, uh, Kingdom screening. Please, uh, email PR to, uh, get your, uh, ticket and everything. So, uh, Sid and I did that, and, uh, yeah, we got the tickets, and, yeah, the, we were kind of set there. So, the screening was not at the convention itself, it was at the Regal, so we kind of just had to do a quick little walk down there. They said that, uh, the doors open at, like, 6, but the film doesn't start till 7, and the reason for that was that they were actually interviewing people before the film. So after we, like, got in there, went to, uh, they had, like, a little tiny booth there. We, like, checked in with them. They gave us our complimentary popcorn and drink. And then we had to go upstairs. And then there was, like, a whole uh, Funimation team up there. And so they actually interviewed Sid and I about Kingdom before the screening. And we actually got onto the uh, Funimation Instagram so if you look at uh, Funimation's Instagram story from Anime Expo, we're on, like, the 10th slide, I think. And the clip mm-hmm. that they use is actually a really good one, too, where it's uh, Sid talking about uh, um, how Kingdom is just this huge franchise in Japan, but it's never really been licensed over here. <laughs> and it's just such a perfect quote. Like, they really picked out just the best part of that conversation. <laughs> I'm really honored that they chose a clip of us talking about it as well. Like, that was very special. Yeah, I mean, I think part of it, I think they noticed that you especially seem pretty knowledgeable about at least kingdom significance. Yeah, though later when I was talking to the Federation reps, I mistakenly attributed kingdom as a uh, Kadansha manga instead of a Shueisha manga, which was a little bit of a slip up on my part. Yeah, I, I noticed that too, but I felt like you were referring to Vinland Saga at the time, so it didn't really like. Yeah, I mean that click. my point still stands because I was making the comparison to Vinland Saga and the, how hard a sell historical fantasy titles for saving audience are over here. Right, but uh, yeah, I guess uh, we should go back 
back a little bit um, to the actual screening. So after we did the little interview thing, we went up to the actual theater room, and it was not that full. Like, I'm pretty sure everyone in there was pressed, but I think because they had sent out the invitation so late, I think a lot of people hadn't booked into their schedule. Because obviously, a lot of the press reps are going to be busy. They, a lot of them have very tight schedules, and some of them may not want to extend their time going to like a th- nearly three-hour movie. So it was kind of good for us, though, because we got pretty good seats. So we kind of picked a spot that's like near the center, and you can see the pretty much the full view of the screen, but it's not like overbearing. So it was a really like good place to sit. And uh, as for the film itself, it's amazing. Um, you can obviously read Sid's review of it on All Comic, shameless plug. But um, <laughs> yeah, it's from the little I've seen of Kingdom. I feel like this perfectly captures the story. Um, and when I was checking it, it's about like four and a half volumes of the manga, and it's mm-hmm. just very like very action heavy, really engaging. The battle scenes are totally badass. Um, oh, yeah. yeah. It's just a really fun film, and you can really tell why this did so well in Japan, because it's probably one of the best live-action adaptions I've seen. And, yeah. Uh, it's it's definitely worth checking out when it uh, screens in theaters in a few months. I drew comparisons in my review to stuff like Game of Thrones and Lord of the Rings, because in terms of bringing a world to life in that level of scale, and that lived-in feeling, I really felt that the Kingdom live-action film accomplished that. Whereas previous live-action adaptations of, you know, similar sword-fighting, Shanbara kind of films I'd seen, like Blade of the Immortal, Ronnie Kenshin, those were also excellent adaptations, but they definitely felt small. They definitely felt like you could see that this was accomplished using resources wisely, but they weren't able to really get the scale across that they could have in, like, a really large-scale work. But they were able to accomplish that with Kingdom. Like, there are massive armies, there are sweeping shots of beautiful landscapes, there is a lot of really intricate costume design, there are characters made purely through makeup or CG effects that look great, like Lankai, the Frankenstein-ish executioner that Shin fights. Really, really incredible production on this film. Like, super exciting, super enjoyable action film. I definitely want to see it again, pay money to see it again, when the wide release comes out on August 16th. Like, I definitely really enjoyed this film. I want to help support it. Because I hope they make more of it. I hope it does really well here as well. Yeah, I have a good feeling this will get a sequel in Japan, so... Yeah. Hopefully it also goes really well here, though, because it's it's definitely worth checking out. And hey, maybe uh, it could do well enough to get us the manga. (laughs) Yeah, that's a a dream at the very least. Media Doe, do one of your 20 volumes of one day releases. Mm Mm-hmm. But yeah, Kingdom, really great experience really great film and it ended earlier than we had thought because originally it was like a seven to ten block but it ended just a little past nine so we got out early we were able to have dinner uh coincidentally at the very same mexican place that we had dinner 
<laughs> on our first night at AX a year ago. Yeah, I think uh, Rosa Mexicano. Yeah, yeah. So we had dinner, and then we just went home. And, yeah, that was our first day at uh, AX. Yeah, it was pretty busy. It was pretty busy. I mean, it's no wonder we spent an hour and a half talking about this day alone. I think we'll need to maybe speed up uh, the other days just to not go over four hours at the very least. But I think that we should talk about Friday, July 5th. And this day we slept in a bit. We weren't as worried about getting up early to do anything. Uh, Because we weren't really planning to do any panels until a fire force at 1 p.m. So I don't remember what you did first thing when you got to the convention center, but I remember that I went right just to the exhibit hall, and I ended up getting in around 9.30, so pretty early. I was able to get to the Viz boot pretty early, and by B-Stars and Oron, the AX, well... It was supposed to be AX exclusive, but then they sold extra copies on Stu Barnes and Noble, so <laughs> it's, it's sort of AX exclusive. Yeah, but anyway, I bought B Stars and Oron and uh, got the Pokemon bag, and yeah, so I got I visited the Viz boot, and then I checked out basically the exhibitors hall for the rest of the after morning until it was time to grab lunch and then head to Fire Force. So what did you guys do on the morning of the the 5th before heading to Fire Force? Um, well, I guess, like, we should probably let Sakaki talk first, because we've been <laughs> talking, just me and you, for a while. Uh, let me think, let me think, let me think. What did we do? Oh, right, I, yeah, I remember. We went to the G-Kids panel. Anyway, we went to the G-Kids panel first, because I remember that wasn't, I, we might have went somewhere else. I'm trying to remember because there was definitely a day that we were kind of waiting for you guys, and then we decided to go do our own thing. For I believe it was Friday, the fifth. Hmm. Yes, it was Friday the fifth. We got up kind of late too, but we were gonna go down to the dealer, uh, the dealer's hall again. But then we were like, "No, nah, we'll go. We could probably save our shopping till Saturday." So Jekka and I just kind of hung out close to that area because I remember that I, wasn't that when you were asking for the autograph boards. A V-Lord? Ooh, me? Yeah. Uh, you were... Oh, yeah. So, uh, yeah, like, you, uh... You would ask... I guess I'll, I'll quickly explain this uh, until we go back to you, but, uh... Yeah. So, in yeah. the morning, before, uh... Before, like, the Fire First panel, the first thing I did was trying to look for autograph boards, and I couldn't find them for the life of me, so I tweeted out with the AX hashtag, um, hey, where the heck can I get autograph boards? I have no idea where they are. And surprisingly, they're just at the Kino Kunia booth. But it was really simple, and I just didn't notice it. <laughs> I wish I had known that, too. It's good now there'd be no future reference where to go to buy them. Yeah, and I remember you texted me, and I was like, I wasn't sure. But yeah, we ended up hanging out just, like, in the hallway going towards the dealer's room, because we were going to go there, but then we decided not to. And Jekka wanted to check out G-Kids, so for a while, until G-Kids was about to happen, we just hung out there. And that's where we got the Kaito Kid picture. <laughs> like, um, to those that didn't see it on Twitter, um, as you may, may or may not know, Jekka's like a really huge Kaito Kid fan. So Kaito Kid came by, and I, of course, I was just like, I have to get a picture of you. You know, my girlfriend really likes Kaito Kid. And the Kaito Kid, you know, struck a pose and 
<laughs> basically, I, my girlfriend got stolen. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, and then, like, later on... I mean, on, he is a thief. Yeah, so, yeah, my girlfriend got stolen by Kaito Kid. <laughs> and then, like, not too long afterward, the same Kaito Kid came back, and this time, they had a Conan with them. So, I asked him for another mm. pick, and then it kind of followed up the story... With well, and that's what my next tweet of the two was like. You know, I asked Conan to intervene, and he got soundly defeated. (laughs) 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 So I was like, "This is false advertising. This isn't how the anime works." (laughs) So, and this, folks, is why we're a Heiji podcast. Exactly. If Heiji had been (laughs) there, no titles allowed. (laughs) If Heiji had been there, this wouldn't have happened. (laughs) Exactly. But no, um, after that, we went to the G-Kids panel, um, and we got to see a couple of announcements, and I actually wish I had, because I actually took pictures of the whole panel, and as I mentioned before we went on mic, uh, Jekka's looking into writing of children, about children to see, which as Velor pointed out, is kind of not ix related, which... I mean, yeah, true, but it's like, it's hard for me to really figure out something to write about for a vlog that's mainly about Shogakukan. Really, it's shown in Sunday, but at this point, I feel like I'm just going to have to expand to Shogakukan in general. <laughs> mm-hmm. Otherwise, it's going to be really hard, because Children of the Sea actually ran in one of Shogakukan's seinen magazines. Monthly Icky. Yes. So it actually would be under my umbrella, sort of, because I have talked about things that aren't in Shonen Sunday before. Mm-hmm. So she's looking into writing. She's actually reading. She was making, I mean, earlier she presented something showing that she was actually reading it. So I, I'm assuming she's reading it maybe now. I'm not sure. Or she might have gone to sleep to get ready for work. But either way, that's what she's choosing to write on. But other than that, we got to see some of what G-Kids is putting out soon. And so, yeah, they have Promare, which we got to see, I believe, later that evening. Or was that Saturday? Yep. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we'll it was later that. in the evening. We got to see Promare. They have that, and they'll have the theatrical releases in September. I mean, I know we're going to get to Promare, so I'm not going to say too much about it right now. But, yeah, I if I can find the means to... If they have any showings near me for Promare in September, I'm definitely going to try to go see that. It was a lot of fun. Yeah, I mean, they have all the showtimes up now, so okay. go hunt yeah. them down, people. Yes. At yes. least for the Fatim events, uh, early screenings, because they're supposed to give it also a wide release. Or yeah, they're doing what they did release. for uh, Maria the not Maria, the, Maria the Witch's Flower. Yeah, Mar- Mary the Witch's Flower. Yeah, that, that's what I was thinking of. Yeah, so they're, I think they're doing what they did for that. So like, big areas are gonna like, um, get like a limited screening. So I'm assuming like the Minneapolis area, and then like L.A. and New York and stuff like that. Yeah, Mary and the Witch's Flower played in the IFC Theater in New York City for, like, six weeks. Like, it played for a long time in the IFC Theater. Yeah, same same in, like, even our, like, area in Minnesota. It was there for a while. Like, it was kind of surprising. Uh. Nice. Yeah. We might uh, luck out, and maybe hopefully an AMC near us might... Just play it in, in a general capacity. I mean, that's so what we happened can use for A-list. Mary, so... Oh, you were able to use A-List for that? <laughs> I was able to use... At the time, I had MoviePass, so I was able to use right. MoviePass. Right, oh, it. yeah. I think I used... Did I use MoviePass to 
do one of Mary? No, I don't think I did. I don't think I ended up seeing Mary a second time. But yeah, I could have used Movie Pass on Mary if I uh, had seen it a second time. But yeah, that could be very fun. Uh, we might see Premiere more than one time in the theater then. I, I know I definitely want to. But anyways, uh, we should probably give it back to Sakaki. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And they had Weathering With You, which is uh, Makoto Shinkai's new work. And that's going to be in theaters nationwide early 2020. I'm looking at my notes now. And then, of course, Children to See, as I mentioned. No date for that yet. And then Ride Your Wave by Masaki Yuasa. Yuasa. Our boy Masaki Yuasa. Mm-hmm. And as a person who's not really a big fan of his, that one actually looks kind of interesting. So I would be willing to give that a shot once once they have dates for it. A lot of these things don't really have dates, so I guess we'll be looking forward to that. And then, you know, the other things they were releasing is Ranja, the robber's daughter. That's coming out August 20th. Hanan Alice, September 17th. And Genius Party Beyond in October with no date. So that was essentially, luckily, it was right after that that we were able to, luckily Fire Force wasn't too far from there. So once you texted us, I mean, we were pretty much, uh, Jekka was kind of disappointed because she was trying to win prizes. But then that's when you V-Lord texted us and was like, go to Fire Force immediately. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, he sent me the same text at 11.55 a.m. while I was eating... Terrible lunch, some terrible <laughs> chicken sandwich from the terrible barbecue truck in the uh, courtyard of the LACC. I got that text from Milard. It was like in all caps, Fire Force General Line is capped. Head to the priority line ASAP. And, uh, and so I was like, well, I guess I should finish the sandwich and head up upstairs to the line. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, no, that's why I had to kind of, I had to drag Jekka out because she wanted those prizes, so. <laughs> and I was just like, uh, V-Lord says we have to go to Fire Force now. <laughs> so, yeah, and actually, you and I arrived at the line at about the same time, Sakaki. Yeah, yeah. In fact, I think, was V-Lord already there by yeah, the time? Yeah, I think he was already yeah, there. Yeah. So I guess yeah. we, we just should probably join us. Us. what I did after I bought a... Yeah, yeah, Actually, yeah. I yeah. Think you were there first, and then you just kind of joined all of us when we all finally got together there. And so, and at this point, this is the first time we've seen each other in basically a day. <laughs> yeah. So, so like, uh, what what happened for me is like why I started like sending you that text is that so after I got my shishigi words and everything, I quickly met up with a mutual friend of one of Sid and I's real life friends, uh, Doko Shai or Mia on Twitter. Um, so I met up with, uh, her friend, Dry Piss Ethan. So he's like a, <laughs> like, uh, I think a YouTuber. So like, we just talked really quickly since like we both knew Mia, took a picture and that stuff. But then right after that, I got a text from Laser, cause he was trying to get into the Fire Force general line saying that it was Cap. So I was kind of panicked, like, oh crap, I should probably go to the priority line in case they're gonna cap that. So I got there, and then afterwards, it started, like, sending you guys the panic text. Yeah. And when I arrived there, you know, they were explaining to people who didn't know where the general line was, like, no, the line is capped, so you can't even come in to this entrance. I was like, uh, I'm pressed. Can I get to the priority line? And the first person I asked was like, oh, uh, we don't know. I don't know. And then I <laughs> saw you, Sakaki and Jekka, you guys just walked 
right into the priority line. Uh, someone else directed you there, and I was like, oh, well, I guess I can go into the priority line. Now. Well, okay, I, I, this is just a quick rant about volunteers here. A lot of them don't understand how press works. <laughs> yeah, we found that out quite often. <laughs> <laughs> like, some of them will be like, oh, go to the general line. Like, no, that's not how press works. I, I get the priority line. That's part of the rules of press. Like, I had to do that at least, like, four or five times at AX. I got to the point where it would just, like, hold my press badge up and be like, yeah, see? Press. Not general. Let me go to the priority line. I think the only time that really happened for me was with Tokyo Glass, where I arrived, you know, as they were directing people in, and I showed them my press badge. And they were like, go to the back of the line of the general Which line. Which is so like, dumb because they weren't even anywhere close to being capped for that. Yeah, but again, because they weren't even close to being capped, it wasn't a big deal. Like, Yeah. We'll get to that later, but none of the events on Saturday in the JW Marriott Platinum Ballroom were at capacity. But the Fire Force was. Fire Force, there was a lot of demand for an event that was in a room that could not fit more than a thousand people. So that probably should have been a main event. Yeah, Fire Force was it was definitely jam packed. We were like if we had I'm pretty sure if we didn't have press passes we would have gotten into that. So Oh yeah, for sure. Like the line capped like over an hour beforehand. Yeah, so that mm-hmm. was that was a I want to say, I mean, there are a lot of things, of course, I mean, including Promare, of course, that were like, if we hadn't had press passes, we wouldn't have been there. But I think that was the first time, really, that I actually encountered something where it's like, damn, I actually would not have gotten into this if I didn't have this press pass. So it's, oh, yeah. it was a big thing. And I mean, I'm not surprised. I mean, you have, I mean, Okubo was there. You had a lot of people mm-hmm. from Funimation there, and even when we got in there, we had to sit there a while through some technical difficulties, but luckily it was nothing yeah, too major. The, well, the panel started half an hour late. It was supposed to be an hour and a half panel, and it started half an hour late, so it was only an hour panel. So that was a lot of time that, I guess, got wasted on the cutting room floor. We probably could have had an even longer interview with Okubo happen. Which is honestly kind of a shame, because that's the main reason for at least us going there. Like, the episode's yeah. out there by that point. Like, I can watch that any time. The episode actually premiered earlier that morning on streaming, like, three hours before the actual event. This was the dub premiere that they were showing in this panel. So, like, this was, like, technically the first showing of the dub. Yeah, but even that came out, like, later in the day, too. Yeah, pretty much right after this panel, they just released it up. So it's like, seeing the show in of itself wasn't the draw. It was like going there for Okubo. And there was, like, supposed to be, I think, a live drawing portion of the panel. Like, I think Okubo was supposed to do some sort of drawing during the panel, but that That was a different panel the day before. I think. I know that was also a, a panel dedicated to that, but I think that there's also supposed to be time for that with this. Because it was an hour and a half. I thought that was also going to be happening here, but of course, it was only Q&A, because it only had half an hour after showing the show. But, you know, uh, I wrote about the Fire Force premiere. It was a good premiere, good adaptation, really artful choices, excellent animation. In terms of production, this is like the 
big thing of the season in terms if you're like an animation nerd and want to show with incredible animation and art direction like this is the show uh, and I'll be curious to see how they handle you know the material going forward uh, it can be kind of messy there's a character whose entire existence is predicated on fan service I remember you and Colton talking about that in your Fire Force podcast yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's a thing <laughs> I, I've read enough of the manga to know and it sucks because I really like this character so I mean fan, yeah. we, V-Lord and I were talking about it like another time actually i think like a day before i left for um ax like if fan service doesn't bother me at all so it's like i and i'm not, definitely not saying that people who do find fan service you know they're against fan service or they find it you know completely unnecessary i'm not saying there's anything wrong with that that's totally fine it doesn't bother me in the least so and i so i like this character for who they are but I can definitely see them being, like, the one thing that's a barrier of entry for people really enjoying Fire Force. And honestly speaking, yeah. even, even though yeah. I don't have a problem with the character, I do kind of look at it like, yeah, Okubo, you don't really need to go this direction with this, but, I mean... it The stuff that happens with her character really makes me cringe in terms of the fan service moments. Like, especially just remembering her introduction chapter and, like, the ridiculous lengths that she ends up being groped in that chapter through nonsensical means. It's like, yeah, uh, yeah. It's, it... it makes me sigh. It's like, man, Okubo, you know, Soul Eater had its horny moments too, but you generally did right by your female characters in that series. Like, they were, they were really cool. I kind of still feel the same way in Fire Force. Like, there are good female characters, but, like, this particular character is, like, I really don't like the way she's treated. Yeah. It's like I'm reading a Hiromashima manga. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it, it is rather unfortunate, but, again, I hope that's not going to... I mean, I know some people are going to jump ship because of that, but, I mean, I hope that yeah. it doesn't... The effort put into you know, Fire Force's production and everything is nothing short of, you know, amazing. Especially when you have a lot of people coming from Studio Shaft to draw this show. Mm-hmm. So, and Shaft yeah. is pretty well beloved in the anime community. So, I'm I'm hoping that people can see past, you know, this one element of the show, which is fair enough if you don't like it. Like, hoping they can see past it and see, you know, what else the show has to offer. Mm-hmm. Because I watched episode one and two today, actually, and I'm really impressed with, I was saying it on Twitter, where I just feel like, like, a lot of stuff with Okubo, in general, is like, he intends to aim for more silly and cool than he does really kind of an outright sense of, like, like, I know Shinra Kusakabe's um, whole character is that he's trying to be a hero. But Okubo's mm-hmm. writing kind of leans more to being kind of more silly and cool-looking. And so yeah. I'm definitely seeing with the anime adaption, they're taking the hero thing and really running with it. And I feel like it has to do with a lot with the, you know, the direction and the music. Like, it doesn't, mm-hmm. it almost doesn't feel like an Okubo manga. And, and I mean, I've read, of course, Soul Eater and his series before that, Biichi, or B1. And yeah, he definitely has a sort of theme to his works or an approach to his works that's very much an Okubo thing. And it's interesting to see Fire Force kind of, the anime adaption kind of take it in a completely different direction. I mean, I was comparing it 
to the new Fruits Basket adaptation, which is takes the material much more seriously than even the manga and, of course, the original anime, which were more had more of a comedic focus. But it feels like Fire Force is taking a page from Fruits Basket, where it's taking the material a little more seriously. Now, granted, we're still at the point of Fire Force where, you know, the comedy isn't it. There are some comedic bits, but it's not as prominent. So it'll be interesting to see how the staff handles it when the series does kind of go more into its comedic elements. But for right now, it definitely feels like Fire Force is going for something a little bit less silly than its origin, than it's the manga it's based off of. Which I, and I find, and, I, and I'm yeah. all for it. I'm, all, I'm really all for it. It's because I think There's it works. There's so much more mood communicated through the anime's use of color and time, especially. That the way in which it lingers on moments and the way in which it frames and light shots, it conveys that serious vibe that you're describing. That in the manga, it's a lot more flat, I feel. Like, there's it's not as much emphasis on that kind of element. It, it feels like a more somber work. Like, I feel like yeah. if you've read the manga and then watch the anime, I mean, even person that's just read a little bit of the manga would be able to feel that, like, I'm not trying, I wouldn't necessarily say the manga is not somber or not serious. It yeah. is. It, I mean, the manga has a clear idea of what the team of the story is. Like, Okubo's works, I think he has very clear, like, underlying team that he likes to explore during, during his works, which is like, there is this chaotic element to society that belies, like, the supposed status quo of normalcy that is always, like, threatening to boil over and cause anarchy in the world. And that's what the heroes are, like, fighting against. They're fighting to preserve order in a world that's always on the precipice of going mad. And that's, like, what Soul Eater was about, and that's what Fire Force is also about. And so the teeming I feel in Fire Force, like, I understood that reading the manga, but I felt that the series undermined itself because of how it used comedy and because it ended up juxtaposing the lighthearted and the serious moments in ways that I thought lessened their impact. Yeah. In contrast, I feel the Fire Force anime has a much better grasp of tone and focuses more on what the core of the story is and it makes changes to the way that the comedic moments are executed and removes things that would be distracting in order to make sure the focus is never lost on what the, the core idea of the story and every episode is. So I I think that the adaptation is very smart. And I felt like with Soul Eater, Bones took Okubo's manga and really took it to the next level in conveying that underlying sense of madness and exploring the themes. I think Fire Force, as you know, it's being done by David Production with a team of ex-staff animators, but I think it's also doing the same thing like the Soul Eater anime did in terms of taking the bones of Akubo's story and taking it to the next level. Yeah, it's an interesting... Like I said, I, I agree with you that it is an interesting juxtaposition there with, like, just how Okubo's story versus his execution. And I feel like the Fire Force is kind of like... At least the anime crew is like looking at it more of we're looking more at the um his theme than, and more operating on that line than 
going for a simple one-to-one execution of it. Which, I mean, I, I, I feel like Soul Eater still kind of... I think it stuck closer. I mean, Bone stuck a little bit closer to Soul Eater's execution. So, it didn't feel too different. It still felt like Soul Eater. I mean, I, I don't know a way to convey this without making it sound like I'm trying to say the Fire Force anime is like a completely different series from the manga. It isn't. They actually do a good job of keeping the spirit of Fire Force, but the execution is is different enough in subtle ways that it does feel like a different experience than reading the manga. And of course, the animation for the first episode was amazing. And, I mean, Bones, of course, did a wonderful job the first day. I mean, I don't think Fire Force is really going to get past, until it gets to a certain point, I don't think Fire Force is really going to be able to escape the shadow of its older brother. I mean, at least for right now. (laughs) And maybe Episode 3 will be that point where it finally is able to say, hey, I'm not Soul Leader's little brother, I'm my own thing. So... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I feel like once we start getting into the meat of the story, because right now I, I'm there are lots of rant, and even I've made the comparisons that it's like okay, because I again I said it on Twitter it's like what if the Soul Eater staff had decided to take a s- slightly more somber approach to the Soul Eater story, like David Production is taking towards Fire Force? I I kind of wonder to myself what would be the difference there. I'm not saying that, again, Soul Eater is a perfectly fine. Adaptation. In fact, it's a really good one. But it's like, again, they stuck really, I mean, not really, really close, but close enough to it that it was like, okay, the differences between the manga and the anime are pretty minuscule aside from the fact that the manga then, you know, at a point goes into its own thing because it was going to catch up with the, an- I mean, the manga, the anime was going to catch up with the manga. <laughs> so, that was the thing. <laughs> Well, yeah, I mean, the Soul Eater anime did eventually reach the point where it had to diverge to, you know, create its own ending. With Fire Force, I don't think they'll need to do that because they're taking, like, a split-season approach, and there's enough manga for them to adapt that I don't think they'll need to make up an original ending. Yeah, I think they could just find like a... over 16 volumes. So even yeah. though it's, like, apparently going to be four cores with, like, a two-core split in between... Like, that's still more than enough material. Yeah, yeah I, I think they'll just find an end point that's, like, at the end of an arc, instead of, like, crea- coming up with their own ending. Because yeah. then they might just make, like, a another season. They might make more seasons, and they just, you know, find success with it, and they want to keep going after the amount of episodes they've already been contracted to do. Yeah, I mean, I, I can see, I, I mean, I don't know if Okubo has plans of ending the manga anytime soon, or if it's, you know, he's still got many, much more, I can see them taking, like, I guess, a My Hero Academia approach, where it's just like, they just do a season, take a break for, you know, maybe these two seasons come together, then maybe they take a break for a year or two, then come back with more, depending on its popularity. But Sakaki, how are we going to get JoJo then? JoJo is the only thing that matters. That's a good question. I mean, it, I'm sure they'll just find time for it. I mean, I know V Lord's <laughs> kidding, but it's like I, I can see fans being like, "Where? What about JoJo?" I mean, <laughs> they were doing that for part five. Yeah, so. uh, I think they'll take a break in 2020, and then they'll come back with Stone Ocean in 2021, and the riots will start. Yeah, I mean, I'm almost positive that. I mean, it's like a year break between 
no, I was just going to say, I mean, David Productions, they've already straight up said that now that Part 5 is over, if Part 6 is going to happen, then it depends on how well Part 5 sells. And although you know my feelings of Part 5, it seems like it was pretty well received by the, the anime community. Yeah. So I'm sure in... On top of that, too, Part 6 is probably going to be the last JoJo adaptation. I mean, I could probably see them doing Part 7? I, I yeah, I think, they, I think they, they're going to try and adapt all of it, so long as the demand and interest is there. They're I just think gonna that after, going to keep going forever. Yeah, I think after Part 7, they probably have to take a break until Part 8 ends, because who knows when Part 8 is going to end. Yeah, but I, I don't think that... I, I mean... The war- the wait for part five was worth it from what people have said. So I don't think anybody's been disappointed by, I mean, my problems with part five really have nothing to do with anime. The anime could be amazingly a- animated and from what it sounds like it was, but I still have mm-hmm. problems with part I five. I mean, your, your problem with part five starts with the D and ends with an O. <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yeah. I mean, what? I'm- you're not a fan of Dio? That the protagonist is Dio's son? <laughs> Listen, I don't have a problem with that guy. <laughs> but no, I, I mean, I'll be buying part five when it comes on Blu-ray. So, I mean, because I, I'm a collector and I can't not have one part. <laughs> so You'll just skip every episode that Diablo shows up uh, in. Which is like pretty much the second half of it, right? I mean, yeah. <laughs> That'll make it easier to watch, though. You, you'll yes. have less episodes. I guess. But yeah, I'll, I'll definitely be picking up part five then. But yeah, Fire Force was, that was, I think definitely, even in the anime community, that was definitely, that's going to be the standout show of the season. It's kind of amazing that mm-hmm. normally July and January are usually pretty quiet anime-wise, but we have Dr. Stone, and usually you don't get many two-core shows at those times, but you got Dr. Stone and Fire Force in the same season, and, you know, although yeah, one I mean, is definitely better is... animated than the other. <laughs> but uh, this summer has a lot of pretty popular, high-profile things, because we also got Winland Saga, we got Astro Lost in Space, and we got... Oh, Maidens in Your Savage Season. Like, all those shows, I think, are, like, the big shows everyone is going to be talking about and watching this yeah. season. Yeah, I, I agree. Like, I, I can see those shows being, like, the big deal. But, yeah, and then, of course, seeing Okubo in person, too. I was, I, I guess, Yeah. I was expecting him to look different. I know this is a weird thing to say, but I was expecting him to look different. But he looks very unassuming, very quiet. He looks a lot different from the pictures that are of him online, but I yeah. think that's intentional because he probably wants to be more discreet with his identity. Right. He definitely looked a lot younger than how I thought he would look. I kind of expect role manga artists to be kind of weathered with age if they're not newbies, but Okubo, you know, he still looks really healthy. Yeah, no, he does, and especially for somebody who's basically gone on record saying, I remember reading an interview where, where I think it was him and Mashima talking, and Mashima was like, man, it must be tough for you to go from drawing Soul Eater monthly to drawing Fire Force weekly. You know, and Okubo's like, nah, I can do it in my sleep. <laughs> you know, it's not I a mean, big deal. I mean, he and Mashima are two peas in a pod then, considering Mashima's level of output that he they're, can they're, do. Both their productivities are just insane. Yeah, yeah no, they're, they're, both, they're both insane, yeah. But yeah, I mean, for even Mashima to be just like, whoa... 
you know, you can, you can just, you're just eating up this month, the weekly schedule. No, Kubo's like, yeah, no, it's not a big deal to me. I can do weekly. The Chad Okubo. So, <laughs> and it's not like, I mean, as much as we've been talking about the tone of the Fire Force manga being a certain way, the artwork is definitely Okubo all the way. I mean, you go into Okubo expecting some certain artwork and definitely Fire Force definitely delivers in that regard. Cause yeah, if you like Soul Eater's craziness, Fire Force is up there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So Fire Force, we really enjoyed the premiere and I especially enjoyed the interview with Okubo and his editor afterwards. I wrote a recap of it on my, uh, panel report. So definitely check that out. But yeah. It's always really awesome to hear about Amangaka's experiences. And then a lot of the questions are mainly about Fire Force itself and Oku's feeling about it being adapted into anime. But I think he's very enthusiastic about it. And all the quotes and all the things he had to say about it were very promising. So very happy to hear that. Yeah, I agree. Um, But we did stay in that panel room for another Amangaka guest. Oh yeah, oh, yes. this was another one I was super excited for. I mean, we had to clear the room because we you can't stay in room 408AB. It's, it's a room that gets cleared between panels. But, you know, we very quickly got back in the priority line and got back in the room Thank very you, quickly. Thank you, press powers. Yeah, if we didn't have press, we would have been... We would have not got back in that room because that was another full house for Bisco Hatchery. And it warmed my heart to see... You know, a shoujo beat event be so packed, you know, because so many of the events we go to and so many events Wiz puts on are, you know, shonen jump related. It's very nice to see so much love for a shoujo manga, especially the works of Bisco Hattori, which have endured, especially Oron High School Host Club. Yeah, like they mentioned, like this was like one of the first shoujo beat related panels in like years. I mean, it was the first one this year for sure in 2019. Like, it's not as common a con- occurrence as it is for the jump stuff. It doesn't get as much attention, so I'm very happy the turnout and the enthusiasm was so high for this, because, like, hopefully it encourages more shoujo mangaka, more shoujo beat-related events to happen at cons. I, was, I actually great. saw her in the hallway before we went in. So when she, wow. like, yeah, I saw her, like, because they were, I guess her staff was, like, in the hall, you know, getting prepared to bring her in. So I saw her, but I didn't know who she was until they introduced her, they brought her on stage. I was like, oh, wait, I saw that lady out front. <laughs> so, yeah, that was yeah, kind I mean, of... That's, that's the thing, though. Like, Bisco Hatria has never really shown her face publicly, like, as far as I know. So, like, mm-hmm. especially for American fans, this is the first time we've actually been able to see her, like, face-to-face. And they were very, like, very cautious about that. They were very, like, emphasize the whole, like, no cameras, no video, right? because they really want to hide that identity. But it was really cool seeing her. She looks surprisingly young. Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. (laughs) I don't know how old she is, but I know she's not young. I mean, another mangaka I was happy to see is in good health. Whenever I see mangaka in good health, I'm very relieved because of how harsh their working conditions are. So I have a question for you guys. Is she doing anything currently? Well, she just finished Behind the Scenes, okay. which is her most recent manga. I actually read it for the first time during the trip in anticipation of the, the panel, and I actually love it more than Oren. I 
I really enjoy that series, and I'm really looking forward to fi- for the final volume coming out in English next month. Also, holy crap, Escohatri's 43 years old. I'm not surprised. I mean, that sounds about right. She did not look 43 at all. No. Neither did she sound 43. <laughs> I mean, Okubo is almost 50, I think, and he didn't look it either, so... Uh, maybe they're drinking from that same fountain that Araki is. They're all just sharing the, the Tokyo tap water super <laughs> or something. Yeah, that, but yeah, that, it, I, of course, me coming, the only thing I know her for, and I've only watched the Oran anime for Hattori, so I've never read the manga. I've only watched the anime, and I only watched mm-hmm. the dub, so I actually don't really know much of the Japanese, anything of it, so... I mean, I really only picked it up because um, our friend Meowth and, of course, Cheka were both really into it, and it was on sale. <laughs> so I was just mm-hmm. like, well, I guess if it's not going to cost me much and everybody likes it, I could check it out. So it was kind of interesting for me to just, you know, be at this panel. I've never really read her works or anything like that. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, I also have not read too much of the Oran manga. I was hoping to read all of her translated works in anticipation of AX, but I was only able to get through behind the scenes, because Oran is quite dense and long. But I definitely do intend to fill in my gaps. But, you know, I was a huge fan of Oran back in the day. You know, been a big fan of it for 10 years. It's definitely one of my favorites, and... Uh, like many people, I really connected with Haruhi as a character, but I also love all the cast. So I'm really glad that they did not shy away from the question of asking Hattori her thoughts on exploring gender identity in Oran's through both Haruhi and her father, Ranka, who is cross-dresser, a performer. So... That was very, I was very happy to see them actually talk about that, you know. I'm glad that Hattori gave such a good response, too, about, like, you know, that's just a part of who you are. And, you know, it's just something to explore because it's part of what makes you an individual. So I really, really uh, appreciated that. But it was a really good uh, panel with Hattori. You know, they went through all her works Millennium Snow, Oran, and behind the scenes, they, you know, asked about, you know, how she came up with ideas for the works, like what kind of research she did for them, how she came up with certain characters, what characters she relates to or sees herself in. There was a lot that they went through in that panel. It was always really interesting to hear, like, Hattori's perspective on her work and her talk process making them, so... I really appreciated that. And then at the end of the panel, of course, she did a live drawing of an illustration of Harvey, which was, you know, already roughed out. But, you know, she inked it in like 20 minutes, which is really impressive. And a funny moment happened is like, like when it was time for her to do the live drawing, like uh, she left the stage to go get the, the shishiki board herself. And that, I think, took the panelists aback because they were not expecting her to like leave to get it herself so that was kind of a funny moment but also like she she was like super into like being there at the event and like really excited to like you know interact with this crowd and like also do just do the drawing and like just be there so it was really really cool 
to like see her be so enthusiastic and lively. But yeah, I mean, Biscoatori, just another amazing event. But after that, uh, we got out by four and at 5.30 was Promare. So we just headed right down to the priority line to wait for that. And uh, so I guess that's what we all did. We just went straight from Biscoatori to Premiere. Yeah, and so we waited there for about an hour uh, in the okay, line, yeah, and then yeah. we got we into just, the room. Yeah, I mean, that. I guess that whole day was the one day that we actually spent the day together. Because <laughs> we pretty much yeah. went from one thing to another thing to another, and we were pretty much together the whole time. And yeah, Promare was basically just us standing <laughs> For like an hour. Just... It was our con family bonding time. Yeah. And, yeah. And Velor got all of the domestic arguments he could <laughs> bargain for. <laughs> and just, just standing against the wall for that hour. It, it was, it was very much worth it. I was heavily entertained. <laughs> so. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I guess for people that don't know, uh, like, that's, I guess, what Jack and I are great at. In our relationship is arguing with each other. <laughs> so, I mean, it's it's the harmless kind, I hope. <laughs> it's, it's more like cute banter, if anything. Okay, fine. We'll call it bantering. It's the harmless banter, I hope. <laughs> but, yeah, we, we, we had some of that. And then we got to see Promare, which was an experience. I, I'm actually sitting here right now as we're doing this contemplating getting this ticket that's close to my house <laughs> in September to see it again, because it was just that good. Like, if yeah. you liked Grand Logan, you're going to love this. This is... I mean, it is a spiritual successor to Girl Logan, pretty much. Like, it's basically so. the apex. It encapsulates the ethos of Trigger's work and that entire creative team's work, so... Basically, the entire lineage of the stuff that Maishi has worked on and the stuff Studio Trigger is known for, their entire philosophy, it's all consecrated in this two-hour film. Yeah, so, like, I I just, like, uh, finished up my review of Promare for Tanami Faithful, which should hopefully be up soon once CJ looks at it. But this might be the best thing Trigger and Imaishi have ever made. It's really that good. And yeah. I might need to watch it again, but I'm pretty sure it might be one of my new favorite anime films of all time. It's mind-blowing. Yeah. I, I mean, I it's pure trigger uh, momentum and creativity just all concentrated, so it doesn't have like any of the maybe pricing problems or like dragging points that their TV series might have, so it's like a complete trail ride beginning to end with no slow points. It's like entirely just amazing two hours of animation that like takes use and advantage of every trick in Trigger's playbook in terms of like making full use of their of great camera movement and also uh, really well integrated CG self stated yeah, so uh, CG models. The C- a lot of the 3D CG was done by a different studio, Sans again. Mm-hmm. So like Trigger was working with them to make sure like the CG was blending in with the 2D animation, and they did a yeah. perfect, wonderful job. But the CG scenes like take up a good chunk of the film because like all the mechs and stuff are CG, mm-hmm. but it looks so good. 
Yeah, it just, it does not look out of place. It's like, it's part of the world. This is how the world looks. It's like, there's a very clear sense of aesthetic identity in terms of the use of shapes that's really apparent from the opening frames of the film, like squares and triangles and like the way shapes are used in the film in terms of how the entire city is laid out and terms of like it's just big rectangular blocks and cubes all around like the look of the film is like based on like these very simple shapes that they managed to play with in really inventive ways that showed like the complexity of like what you can do with these simple forms so it's like super super intelligent in terms of like design sensibilities but also again the animation just top-notch character animation like full of the eccentricities that we know trigger for the story a lot of people read it as like a commentary of things that are happening in the u.s right now uh trigger denied that in their live drawing panel and at a certain point in the movie i feel like any comparison metaphor that you can make gets lost especially once you have the villain reveal and you know what his backstory actually is, it's like, no, this is not really what they're trying to say. What they're really trying to get out is, again, like, this entire team of, like, humanity, like, united, you know, evolving, progressing together, everyone, you know. It's it's showing empathy and compassion to everyone. It's about the power of unity, like, this has been a message in, like, a lot of Imaishi stuff since Gurren Lagann. Like, it reminds me a lot of, like, the thing between, like, the humans and, like, the beastmen in uh, yeah. Gurren Lagann. I mean, so, I, guess, yeah. I guess that is kind of a common thing that you see with Kazuki Nakashima's work. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, Nakashima, the writer, yeah. Yeah, he yeah. Just... I mean, there's always this oppressed group, and there's always this idea of who you think the villain is is not the actual villain. There's this actual power structure in place that is really in control behind the scenes, and who you thought were the villains were actually trying to fight against that system in the, and unwittingly causing oppression and violence in of themselves. And then ultimately, it is by just uniting together that the common people like are able to resist and unite and defeat the oppressive opponent. Like that's kind of how you can distill Gurren Lagann, Kill a Kill and this film premiere in a nutshell. It's like following that kind of formula and structure. I, I will give Premier one thing though. <clears throat> one twist that it that the others don't have so much is that it technically doesn't really have a villain. Like, yeah, you have the guy doing bad... It, it, I feel like it definitely has a villain, though. <laughs> yeah, he's a bad guy. It's a, he's a bad guy. He doesn't really have redeeming qualities. Like, ultimately, like, Gallo shows empathy towards him. He wants to save him as well because he is a good person and he does not believe in sacrificing he's people for the greater good. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Yeah, definitely, like, Gallo is... An XP economy. I mean, though, there's no is definitely that. a Kanima S character for sure. But I don't think that the villain himself is a good person in any stretch. Like, from his actions in the movie, he's pure selfishness, and that's kind of the point. Like, he only cares about himself, and his idea of saving the world is like making a world in which he is 
at the top and he is revered. It's not actually, he's not actually interested in helping or saving people. And that's kind of like the point is like, Gallo is a genuine hero who wants to save everyone and help everyone. And that's kind of ultimately the core that kind of goes back to a lot of, in my case works is that humanity is at their strongest when united together and not divided. And that's how you pierce the heavens and go exactly. to space. <laughs> exactly. Celebrate our individualism and our differences. That's another core theme that explores in this movie. Yeah. And sexualized CPR scenes. <laughs> and of like the burnish are. <laughs> yeah. I really appreciate it, you know, that again, they try to deny that the scene has the subtext that it does, but I think Wakabayashi you know, was being sarcastic. No, he was being coy. He was he was trying to, to uh, you know, kind of wink and a nod at the audience. But I think they very knowingly did that scene with with the context and intent that audience was supposed to read into. I really appreciate it. This is like the first. You know, one other really interesting thing about Premiere to me is that Trigger's works and Amaishi's works, they are known for their really heavy sexualization of female characters in particular. I didn't really feel that in Promare at all, which was very interesting. And instead, I really definitely felt that there was more of a queer male perspective in the film, and especially in terms of the interactions between Gallo and Leo, which of yeah, course culminates in that CPR scene. release, we're going to see so many Gallo-Leo ships. I mean, Swear I've already God. seen them on uh, Twitter. Yeah, on the Japanese side. <laughs> yeah, and I appreciate, you know, Kill a Kill kind of also had an emphasis on female female relationships with Ryoko Mako. And uh, to a lesser extent, Satsuki, no, no, but uh, I think that also Premier is also now doing that for male-male relationship with Galo, Leo, you know, even if it's not an explicit romantic relationship, it's like there's definitely the subtext there that, you know, can be read into and appreciate. So I like that evolution in terms of, like, exploring sexuality and, like, uh, queer teams in Trigger's works. Yeah. But... I, I had to admit that I was kind of, like, I mean, knowing Trigger, I was kind of concerned about it just being a movie and wondering if they could get a good story out of just a, such a short runtime. And I think they did a pretty good job with it. I, I can't say that there's anything that I was like, oh, I wish they expanded on that a little bit more or maybe had a little bit more time on this. I have to say that it, it was pretty much a great ride from beginning to end. I mean, just when I was mm-hmm. beginning to think, oh, man, they have all these extra characters and they're not going to do anything with them, they play pretty well into the, cl- the climax. And every, it feels like all yeah. of the characters are yeah. utilized well. Like, I feel like they could have yeah, used the supporting cast a little bit more, but even then, everyone, I feel like, got a decent moment to shine. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Definitely, yeah. I do feel like the supporting cast could have had a little bit more time to shine, but it wasn't like a thing where I was, like, really kind of, oh, man, you know, they really dropped the ball here. It's like, it yeah. would be, it would have been a thing where it was nice if it happened, but at the same yeah. time, what we got was definitely worth, you know, what we got from them was... Paced, the movie was paced well enough where I didn't really feel like it was lacking that we didn't get more time with them. Also, holy crap, that opening scene. Yeah. Oh, there's just a, an incredible continuous scene of action where, like, the camera changes perspective so much as 
Gallo and Leo are fighting throughout this building. It's just insane. Oh, yeah. If you also, like any sort of animation, this is a must-watch film. Go buy tickets right now. Exactly. Right no, now, no, yeah. go do it. Stop this podcast just and go, go buy them ticket, right now. Like, right now and see this thing. Like, I remember V-Lord and I were even talking at the beginning of the movie. It felt like the end. Like, the very first <laughs> fight felt like the climax. Like, I was like, how? I, I was actually asking myself, how are they going to top this? And they managed to and top they did it. it somehow. <laughs> I was like, you could take this fight that we're seeing in the first five minutes of this film, throw it at the end, and it would it would fit perfectly fine. Yeah. <laughs> like, like, the thing with Premiere, it's such a simple story at its core, but because it's so simple, it allows the trigger staff to just go batshit crazy with it. Exactly. That's that's pretty much I mean, Imaishi's thing. It's just batshit insane. And because he didn't have to worry about filling a core, <laughs> he just... <laughs> Just started. He just he didn't hit the floor running. He hit the floor with afterburners. <laughs> just the whole way through. If you breathe, you probably miss something. Whether it's a reference or the plot or everything. Just and then of course, I mean, even right down to the voice actors. I mean, Gallo and Leo were like. I, I do believe that their voice actors were more just like movie actors than they were anime actors. But some of the actors, I mean, Imaishi has his crew when he has voice actors that he brings them back in every show. And a lot of them did appear in Promare as well. Because I'm pretty sure, like, I'm not sure if it was the, no, the, the older sister of the heroine in the anime, which the heroine is actually voiced by Ochako from, um, my Hero Academia, but her older sister is voiced by Ryoko. Ryuko. And then yeah. mm-hmm. and you had the sci- the the mad scientist chick. She was voiced by uh, Nonon from Kill the Kill. Kill the Kill. I think the seiyu is uh, Mayumi uh, Shintani. Yeah, and I like I like her seiyu a lot. And she's also I think she's Haruko in um, FLCL. Yeah, yeah, she she is. Yeah. I, I I love her acting so much. Yeah, I love I really love her voice. Like I so I bless Imaishi for continuing. <laughs> to cast her and all of his stuff, because she's in Luluko as well. Oh, yeah, she is. So, she's like the blue the blue girl, right? Yeah, the blue-haired girl with an extra eye. Yeah. Yeah, that's her Thank as well. Thank you, Imaishi, for saving anime once Yeah, he, he, he... I mean, every <laughs> single one... I, I don't remember if she was in Grenlagen, actually. I don't think she was. She might have been, but it might have been... I don't a think really... I've ever watched Grand Logan in Japanese, so I wouldn't know. I've watched it both... I, I actually mm. watched Grand Logan as it was airing in Japan, so week to week. Can you imagine having to watch Grand Logan on Drip? <laughs> oh, <laughs> So I was watching it week to week before it got licensed, even. <laughs> so I was watching it without subs, just off of Japanese TV. And that's the great thing about Kazuki Nakashima's storytelling is... I didn't really, I mean, I knew enough Japanese to kind of follow along with the story, but his storytelling is so bombastic that you really don't need it. Like, the visuals alone explain what's going exactly. on as best as you would with listening to the vocals, You can go to yeah. Premiere with no subs and pretty much get what's going on. <laughs> yeah. It'll get weird near the end, but I think you'll get as much out of it as, uh... You would with the dialogue. Yeah, exactly. You 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 could. So I was watching Grenlogan on Drip like every week one episode, and <laughs> it was painful, but I did it. So yeah, I don't think uh, she was in that one, but yeah, I I know that they pretty much picked character voice actors from different trigger shows and had them there. So 
that was a nice nod. And of course, there were nods to all of the other trigger shots. I mean, it was great when they pulled out the drill. Everybody in the audience went crazy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Everybody went insane. <laughs> Even when uh, the uh, the Leo de Gallon came out, people were cheering like crazy because it also has a similar design to the Gurren Lagan mech itself. Yeah. 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 Like, but the so, yeah, drill, that- like. <laughs> Uh, I mean, All those reactions like were noisy. just like so perfect. <laughs> normally, I don't like noisy audiences, but the pro mayor audience, they, they, yeah, that was good. That was good, good stuff. Like, I, I don't think I, I, I personally like watching stuff by myself on my own, but I don't think I would have enjoyed pro mayor as much for my first time around. I mean, definitely when I buy it on, I'm buying it for home video. And I'm definitely going to enjoy it on my own, too. But I think for the first time around, I actually kind of appreciated watching it with a huge crowd of people who loved, like, trigger work. So that was fun. Then, of course, they had the, you know, Imaishi... Shigeto Imaishi Wakabayashi yeah, superlogging yeah, uh, Koyama. They, they, all, they all came out and they were talking. It was... I mean, I made a joke on Twitter that went kind of viral, which is like, we actually had an earthquake while they were talking. <laughs> Yeah, and, you know, I made a joke yeah. on Twitter where it was kind of like, you know, Imaishi's so powerful that the, even the earthquake waited until after Promare to, to happen. <laughs> I mean, after that movie, I wanted him to have been surprised if there were seven earthquakes. It, it was, <laughs> yeah. yeah. I mean, they joked in the panel that the audience caused the earthquake by being so enthusiastic. Yeah, for I, I love that they, they just swung with it. I mean, the room was shaking, the lights were shaking, and they just swung with it. They just were like, yeah, yeah, was, you guys are really into this, huh? <laughs> that was kind of scary because, yeah. you know, we're sitting in that room with all the, the lights hanging above and they were swaying for like 10 minutes they afterwards. Like they were going to fall off. Yeah, they did. Yeah. Like, I was actually a little bit nervous. I've never, you know, I've never been in an earthquake like that, but yeah, I was nervous a bit. Mm-hmm. But luckily, it it didn't end up being a problem, even though it was a... Uh, it was a serious earthquake. It was a 7.1 earthquake. So it's just a good thing that the LACC has good up-to-code building standards because, you know, in uh, other conditions, that would have been a, a pretty devastating big deal. So very good that building codes are, are much better now. Yeah, that's that was really good. But, I mean, on the news of Trigger and everything, it was, didn't something unfortunate get leaked, but we got a little something extra to make up for it? Yeah, so like, so at the Trigger panel, they announced a brand new animal, which is, uh, by, I think it's directed by Yoyo Shinari, and then it's written by Nakashima. But of course it got leaked that morning, so to make up for it, they quickly got the rough character designs for, I think, the main heroine and the main uh, male character. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, yeah, those are really cool to see. Um, I'm, I'm definitely interested in uh, checking out that show when it comes out. Yeah, Yoyo Shinari always does great stuff. Little Witch Academy was awesome, so I'm really looking forward to being a. I still need to look at... I just need to watch Little Witch Academy. <laughs> like, because it got <laughs> Netflix... It got Netflix, I kind of didn't... Like didn't see it, but because I didn't have Netflix for a while, now I do, so I really have no excuse. <laughs> but yeah, I, I should watch that before Brand New Animal starts making it the rounds. But just to... it's really fun. I, I like it a lot. It's it kind of feels like Premiere where it's a really just kind of a labor of love of kind of what Trigger's capable of. Just all these kind of unique ideas in one show. Hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's something I'll, I'll sit down with. 
I only wish I only wish I had remembered about it while I was on vacation because I could definitely have sit down on Netflix and watched that. I mean, especially since uh, a lot of time when Jekka and I were in the hotel, we were watching. We actually, I mean, kind of going off topic for a bit. Yeah, I, you know this is on Twitter. We were actually watching the Japanese version of Coco, which is Remember <laughs> Me. And we actually watched Japanese versions of um, uh, Rescu- the Rescuers Down Under, and we didn't get around the Goofy movie, but we have that. I actually have a connection in Japan that got me some of these movies, so... Seeing Disney movies in Japanese is always an, it's always a trip. <laughs> so definitely, I, I, I kind of wish I had used that time to watch maybe Little Witch Academia, but what can you do? But yeah, after I, after the trigger panel, I mean, Jack and I pretty much headed back. And I mean, unfortunately... Yeah, I, there's... we did the same. Because trigger panel, it did start a little late and it ended around like nine. Yeah. So I had wanted to do the Titmouse five second day because when back when I was in New York, I would go to that every year. And it's always another awesome showcase of independent animation from Titmouse animators. But, you know, it was already started by the time we were out of the trigger event and we were already exhausted. So we're like, oh, yeah, in well, classic trigger fa- fashion, they went over time. Yeah. <laughs> so... We decided to just head back. We got, like, uh, some root beer from the stall that was towards the entrance, the main entrance of the LACC, which, in retrospect, I probably shouldn't have bought that can because I did not get an opportunity to refill it at any point. I refilled it a bunch on the following days, so it was worth it for me, at least. Yeah. For me, I only had it that one time, but I really liked that root beer. That I had, like, a vanilla flavored one. It was really yeah. nice. The cups are also really nice quality. Like, I also bought a metal straw from there the next day, and it's just mm-hmm. a really nice combination. Nice, nice. So, but, but that was our Friday, and it was a yeah. pretty packed Friday, but Saturday was also, in terms of the sheer amount of events that I was at at Saturday, it, I think that it, that was probably the busiest day, but it didn't feel as Hectic because it was I. We were in the JW Marriott all day, essentially. At, at and, least you in were. the same. So, like, I was in the same room for like ten hours straight or something. I mean, I left briefly to get dinner, but basically. But yeah. So, so let, Saturday let's start at the morning of the day, though. So yeah. the first thing for the day was uh, one one thing I was very much looking forward to the double feature screening of. Goemon Spray of Blood uh-huh. and Fujiko's Lie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so all of us went to that, and we actually were near each other for once. Um, <laughs> we actually saw you guys in line, and then we were able to like just yeah, hang yeah, out. Yeah, we were like, I mean, actually, that was that was, and I think that's the last time we saw each other <laughs> for the rest I think of the con. So. <laughs> so, yeah, so yeah. no, that was. Again, but we did get to see that together, and I'm glad for that, because yeah. I'm actually not... I shouldn't say I'm not into Lupin, but I haven't seen much of it. The extent of Lupin I've seen is Part 5. I've seen all of Part 5, and mm. that's pretty much... Well, Jekka, of course, showed, being the Conan fan she is, she's seen... I've watched them, the Conan and Lupin crossovers with her, and that was pretty much the extent I've seen other than maybe a handful of episodes on Adult Swim when it used to air. I mean, Lupin was a thing I saw it, and I was like, oh, it's, it looks fun. It looks aged. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I mean, wasn't really... they were airing 
a seventies TV show back in two thousand and two. Yeah, it was like, yeah, age. it looked aged. So I was like, although I enjoyed it, I was like, yeah, this looks too old for me to really be into. So I watched a handful, then kind of forgot about it. Then when you know, Jekka showed me the Conan Lupin crossover, I was like, oh, okay, I think I could possibly get into Lupin. So when, then that was around the time Part Five got announced, and I was like, okay, I'll watch it. And I watched Part Five again on Drip, and. I enjoyed it. I enjoyed Part 5 a lot. So, definitely when... I know when we were deciding whether we wanted to do My Hero Academia or Lupin, at first it was mainly Jekka that kind of decided, you know, she didn't want to bother with My Hero Academia. So Yeah, I think we made the right decision. Because My Hero Academia was... Not only was it a wristband ticketed event, so obviously highly competitive, and people were lining up hours before even with the wristbands to like try and get in, but also it was a two-hour event for a half-hour premiere. Yeah. And so it was one and a half hours before like even screening the episode of them just interviewing the dub actors, which, you know, I like the dub, and I like the dub actors, but like again, it's, it's a two-hour event for a half-hour premiere, and it's a lot of filler and fluff. And everyone knows what's going to happen in that episode. You can yeah, literally I, just go read the, the manga. The reaction from people who saw the episode was like, oh, for the amount of hype and build-up, that was kind of underwhelming because not much happened. Of course, that's every My Hero new season premiere. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that, that's to be fair. I mean, yeah, I feel like in the end, I mean, as I said back when we were making the decision, I was just like, I'll go where, wherever you guys are going. And yeah, I think Lupin was the right decision because I've never seen him. So I, I've never seen this take on Lupin before. So the Takeshi Koike. Yeah, Koike's, Koike's. Yeah, I was, I was having a tough time remembering his name, but yeah. I've never seen his take on Lupin before. And, you know, again, being somebody that's only seen Part 5, like, seeing Koike's take on the series was really interesting, because it's, like, very different. (laughs) Well, not too different. I wouldn't say it's too different. It still feels like Lupin, but definitely not the kind of Lupin that, at least... I don't know. Like, of course, there are lots of interpretations of Lupin. Yeah, you you have them. You have certain movies that are like way different than the TV shows, and they're different than the manga. And then you have like stuff like Part Five and Part Four that like are closer to the original spirit, but still sort of different. <laughs> so it was interesting to see Koike's take on it, and definitely like I can see why you had to be eighteen or older to get into them. Oh, I Especially mean, for Fujiko's Lie. Yeah. I, but yeah, but Fujiko's well, Lie, yeah. I didn't really feel like, other than a little bit of nudity towards the end, it... Mm, yeah, it wasn't that. It really it, wasn't... It, you know, honestly, it was n- surprisingly not exploitative for yeah, someone very, by Fujiko's. Very... And especially after Jigen's Gravestone, oh. I was very appreciative of how Fujiko was depicted. That, that's what made me worried about this Fujiko film, too, because of how they handled Fujiko in Jikin's Gravestone. Like, the whole yeah. thing with the Koike films is that they're great action set-piece films, but they really didn't know what they were doing with Fujiko for those first two. And it really was with that third film, Fujiko's Live, where they finally understand Fujiko's character. It's a great character piece for her. Like, it's really just about her and, like, her motivations as a character and, like, how she will tell lies to manipulate people to do what she wants. But, like, 
just like the rest of Lupin Gang, she does have a heart underneath, like, her exterior. You know, she is, like, I mean, she has some softness underneath, like, her selfish motivations and desires. She is the most selfish of the Lupin Gang, but she is able to display kindness in a sense as well. Because she is trying to exploit the little kid, you know, to get, you know, the bank information. But she does also care about his safety. Like, she isn't heart- completely heartless. So it's a good take on her character and, like, understanding. Fujiko is not, like, a complete monster, but she is, like, a very... She's someone who knows how to manipulate the truth in order to keep people at a distance and also get what she wants. Christina V's performance as Fujiko was also just fantastic. Yeah. yeah. This was definitely closer to... Because this universe, these films are supposed to be set in the same universe as Fujiko Minate, the TV series, I'm glad that this film was definitely more in line of the Fujiko we saw in Woman Called Fujiko Mine. So I was very happy about that after the missteps. And actually got narrative progress to whatever Koike wants to do with Mamo. Oh yeah, like this brought in the other films. Like we got the gunman from Jigen's Gravestone reference. We've got uh, Hawk makes a cameo from Prey of Blood. So now it's like kind of coming together. Yeah, and he has his arm back. So it's like kind of coming together. Okay, so these assassins, they were sent by someone. That someone is probably Mamo. So we're probably going to get more exploration of that. I mean, I assume we're going to get a Senigata film next, and then we're going to get a Lupin film, and the Lupin film is going to be like some sort of reinterpretation of Mystery of Mamo. Or at the very least, it's going to be a culmination of the storyline, and then they face off against Mamo. God, a Zenigata film would be so cool. I can't wait, because, like, I don't know anything about what you guys are talking about. <laughs> so, it's well, like, it's... It's it's uh, it's deep lore Lupin stuff. Or Sakaki, at least, like, do you know who Mamo is? No. <laughs> <laughs> well, there's a... The first Lupin film was called The Mystery of Mamo. So, I'll leave it at that. Okay, I mean, I'm not asking you guys to give me an explanation now. It's it's totally fine. I know we're, we've been recording for a while as is. This, this is just going to become a Manga Mavericks at Movies episode about <laughs> all the Koike films. Yeah. Uh, we could record one of those at some point. Yeah, but no, no, no. I, I'm not expecting an explanation now. It's totally fine. I mean, I, definitely I'll be... I, I'll definitely be looking for more of Ko- Koike's um, take on Lupin. I mean, when the, Zeni- the Zenigata films come out, I, if... There's a if there'll there'll be something I try to get to go watch, you know, in whatever way I can possible to see those because like, I'm definitely intrigued by both of these. Especially, I thought they were both good, but I, I did like Fujiko's a bit more. Mm-hmm. It, it's kind of like comparing. It's like giving. It's like a four point five versus a five. I mean, they were both great, and I like both of them a lot. But Fujiko's, yeah. I think, just worked better for me. Like it felt more. I think the dub improved the Goemon one. Because I feel yeah. when Sid and I first watched it in Japanese, I guess I didn't really, like, it didn't really come across, like, Goemon's, like, side of the struggle about him trying to become, like, stronger, like, raise his resolve to fight Ah. But Lex Lang's kind of, like, stoic, like, performance as Goemon in this film, it really, like, hit it harder for me. And, like, I think that's because, I don't know, I think maybe Lex Lang just, like, 
kind of understood like what they're kind of going for with Gohmana. It just worked really well, so I think it ended up making me enjoy it a lot more. Yeah, I, I can see that. I mean, of course, as somebody who hasn't seen the Japanese version, I, I mean, I can only comment on the dub, but yeah, it did feel... Both of them worked well in tandem, and I'm glad that we got to see them together rather than just seeing one or the other, because definitely, I feel like Gomon. I like the pursuit in the Gomon one, but I like the story more in the Fujiko one, where it just felt more like, I don't know, I just felt like the cast was better utilized in that one. It felt like in the Gomon one, well, I can understand it was about him. And so we're, you know, the other the other cast was kind of like, you know, put on the sidelines for him to do his thing. But I felt like they were all really well utilized. I mean, you know, of course, Gohmon not being in the second one, like, I think they were all better utilized in the Fujiko, where it felt like Lupin, um, Jigen, and Fujiko all really played well against each other and everything. You know. Yeah, like in the Goemon one, they're kind of just watching Goemon do his like, thing yeah, the entire time. Yeah, exactly. They're just more or less. I mean, even Fujiko just kind of mentions it, like like men are such idiots, and they're just you're just watching him try and kill himself. And then she walks <laughs> away and doesn't appear for the rest of the film. Exactly. Yeah. That was. Yeah, I mean, again, I get it. That's Goemon's thing, and it was very cool looking, and. I get that, but I, I do just like that. The Fujiko one, it felt like everybody had something to do, and everybody contributed to the plot in some way. And even, you know, I mean, granted, Jigen didn't do as much there either, but his banter with Fujiko and just his commentary, it felt like he was the one kind of, and I guess that is his role in the, in the Lupin universe of being the kind of straight man, like, this, 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 you know, this shit's ridiculous, but I'm going to go along with it because you're my buddy. Lupin, and I kind of like that that's his role in this. I mean, again, as somebody that's only seen one part, I'm only, I'm just now getting to kind of learn about the characters. Well, now, Sakak, we have to make you watch everything Lupin-related. Well, I mean, Jekka just recently finished part two, <laughs> so I guess at some point I should probably watch that, so I have something to talk to her on that end. I mean, I don't know if she finished part five. I know for a while she kind of stalled on it, so at least I can say I have that over her. (laughs) But (laughs) I, you know, I know she's she's definitely more into Lupin than I am. But I I can definitely see myself getting into it. I was going to watch them backwards, so next would be part four for me, I guess. (laughs) I mean, we watched one. Yeah, I I really like part four. I guess I'm going to watch it. I know we watched one at Anime NYC. I don't remember. Yeah, so that, that yeah, was a uh, PCA for Lupin Part Five. Oh, yeah. okay, got you. Because yeah, I don't. It was I, like the 50th anniversary special. Oh. Yeah, it's like Lupin is still burning, which is like a reference yeah. to like the first episode of Lupin Part One. And it had cameos of a bunch of famous Lupin villains from famous Lupin stories, like Pikal showed up, uh, Kyosuke Mamo showed up, yeah. So, a lot of, very referential. But, uh, I love the screening of both films. It was great to see the dub, and I definitely felt more appreciation for uh, Golden Monashikawa's Spray of Blood. I really enjoyed that a lot more this time, and I really love Fujiko's Lie, like his exploration of Fujiko's character. And then afterwards, there wasn't too much, you know, we forgot something very funny that happened before the screening even started, and that was like the fire alarm that went off. Oh, oh, yes. Yeah. <laughs> And everyone was confused whether we were supposed to evacuate or not. 
because we couldn't understand what the intercom guy was saying, and we could only make out, like, don't exit using the elevators, or, like, should we exit at all? What's what's happening? But eventually, it's funny, because the people who are in, like, the second Diamond volume, they came out of their room, and then they just went back in, like, <laughs> a couple minutes hilarious. later. And then they eventually just let us into the the room. They so also didn't I still have don't a priority know. line, which made it really confusing. But then we noticed yeah. pressed people going in, so we just, like, jumped out of the line and just walked in. Yeah. And, yeah, I don't think we ever really figured out what actually happened that caused the emergency. But I think someone just called in a, like, false, like, uh false threat. Yeah, so annoying. But at least that didn't interfere with yeah, our it, it enjoyment. It didn't affect the screening. We got to see both films, and now we mu- must wait three to four years for Koike to make Zenigata's investigation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, luckily the Goemon and Fujiko films will be on Blu-ray soon, so we can rewatch those in the meantime. And as far as the screening goes, afterwards there was a very short bit where Christina V, Lex Lang, and Tony Oliver came up, and they did kind of a trivia off to give away some prizes, uh, mainly a five, like, a Fujiko's Lie t-shirts, and I actually won one of the t-shirts for answering the question of what Lupin's new time slot on Tanami was, and I wasn't the first person to answer the question, but the person who answered first got it wrong, because they thought mistakenly it was 1am, when it was actually 1230 it probably didn't help that the promo they showed wasn't. Yeah, it was like the, the promo, promo they that, showed like was the initial one, so it had it at one a.m. But that's what the test was. It, it shows who's real fan. He's really keeping track of what the time slot change actually is. The the real hardcore tsunami fans. Yeah, and uh, they gave me it in a large, but I was able to very quickly exchange it for an extra large. So that was really nice as well. And they yeah. were giving away those shirts with sales of Daisuke Jigen's gravestone at the discotheque boot, and you bought this, uh, Jigen's gravestone and got a shirt, but like I, I think they only had it in large by the time you got there. Yeah, they said that they ran out of extra large, or like they didn't have any extra large. Mm-hmm. So like, I just took the large because the shirt looks cool. Yeah, so I lucked out at least in getting an extra large. But yeah, yeah. it was awesome to win a Fujiko's Life shirt. And also, uh, they gave out freebie fans that were like dual-sided fans with Goemon and Fujiko, the key visuals for the film. So that was it's really, a cool, really cool fan. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I'm actually looking at mine right now. It's sitting on my desk. So, I mean, I'm surprised with all of the all the traveling I did after the con that it didn't get like ruined in any way. So it's well built. Oh yeah. <laughs> Very sturdy. But, yeah, and then we went our separate ways. So, yeah. I'm curious what you did on Saturday Sakaki, because eventually V-Lord and I, our day kind of reconvened. But we didn't see you for the rest of the day, so what did you and Jekka do? I mean, t- like I said, I already sort of spoiled Sunday. We just kind of woke up late, ate breakfast, and then got ready to get on our plane to other greener pastures. But Saturday was mainly just shopping for us. I mean, we went down back to the other hall. I mean, Jack had to get stuff for some friends. I had to get stuff for my family. I mean, we, you know, we even went our separate ways in the dealer hall for a while, so I was just kind of by myself, and she was doing her shopping. And, I mean, yeah, that was pretty much it. Like, we did, we got our stuff. I mean, I 
I thought we would be coming back to sun on Sunday to you know pick up more stuff, but then eventually we just decided, eh, you know, let's, we're we're not gonna really do that. So it's whatever. But yeah, I mean, you know, spending time in just the dealer hall this year, I don't know. I it felt like there was less stuff. It might just been me though, but it felt like there was a lot less stuff because like it felt like last year there was just. Every, it was, not so much that it was not jam-packed, but it felt like, I guess, the variety of stuff was lesser. Like, I feel like last year when I went, maybe it's just because that was my first time, so everything was, like, shiny and new. But it was just like, yeah, it felt like it wasn't, there wasn't as much stuff that to pick from. Because I remember, like, I had so much last year that it was like, getting, coordinating with people and asking, what do you want, where do you want it, where is it, that was really difficult. But this year, mm, and it might have just been because it was more of, I guess, of a focus on just the uh, industry guests, which is something we were talking about, which is like, it felt like it was more of a, it's slowly becoming a con that's more for industry than it is for, like, John Everydude to just come in and, you know, watch anime. Yeah, it feels like it's becoming more like E3, where it's catered towards press coverage and industry coverage, rather than for the fans, which is... Kinda conflicting for me. Yeah, yeah, I mean, cause, I've only been to two, and now I'm probably not gonna go next year, but it's less a thing for me that, that this year was bad or anything, as much as it is just, I have to make choices based on money, you know, money, obviously. And so, if I want, I wanna go to CR Expo next year for sure, so. If I wanted to do that, there'd be no way I could do AX and, but unless I'm already living in LA for some reason, then there's only, or if I'm in California, I shouldn't even say LA, unless I'm in California already. Sakaki, I don't think you want to live in LA. Yeah, I don't think I do either. <laughs> <laughs> but, yeah, unless I'm like in the area or like at worst it's somewhere where I could like drive there easily or get there easily, whichever one it is, I couldn't do both. So I want to do CR Expo like definitely next year. And that seems like it is more of a con for people who just like anime. Yeah, mm-hmm. I'd agree. I mean, any, if anything, I think one thing you should take away from the discussion is that if you're a general attendee, you probably should not go to Anime Expo necessarily unless you really want to see something there. Yeah. Like, if you are looking for a good con experience, you should probably go to, like, Anime NYC or, like, Crunchyroll Expo, like Sakaki mentioned. Just a smaller Mm. con. Yeah. Because Anime Expo's getting to the point where it's just... It's not going to be fun for you if you're a normal attendee. Yeah. Yeah. Basically, It's too crowded. And you can't get into the events you want to reliably because the rooms are too small. Compared to the amount of interest there is. Yeah. So. I mean, that's that's kind of what I'm noticing, too. And again, I've only been two years. And I definitely would consider... I mean, wow, it sounds like we're wrapping up now, which I don't know how long we're, we're recording, but probably... <laughs> well, we are. I still have to go through the rest of our Saturday, so I think we still have a little so bit more we, to should go. Should we go through that first? Yeah, I, I guess so. Uh, we I mean, probably should. I mean, technically, again, my Sunday, I've already told you what I did, so there's not much for me to add there. So definitely, if you guys got Saturday and Sunday to talk about, 
Sure, I mean, you right. probably should go into all that. But yeah, I mean, for yeah. me, I pretty yeah. much could wrap up by saying, yeah, I definitely will be going back to another expo, but it pro- it more likely than not, in fact, I can probably say with certainty I probably won't be going next year unless some, like, guess, like, some, they, they pretty much guarantee they're going to announce something for Shonen Sunday or some Shonen Sunday manga is <laughs> going to be there. <laughs> Fukuchi for Anime Expo yes, 2020. <laughs> I mean, oh, wow, Fukuchi, I would drop everything and go there to see him. <laughs> that, that would be one I need to go to. I mean, well, any, any really, any Shonen Sunday artist, like, I would probably at least consider going for them. Just so, you know, I have something to report on, I guess. But, like, yeah, Fukuchi, Fujita, one of, if one of those guys, I mean, Takahashi, if one of them were to say they're going to Anime Expo, yeah, I'd have to drop everything and go. Mm-hmm. But that, now I guess the floor is on you all. Okay, well, V-Lord, we separated after Lupin for a brief bit. So why don't you describe what you were doing during the time we were, you and I were separated? Yeah, so I didn't do too much. So basically, Sakaki Jack and I walked back to the convention center, and we went to, I think, the exhibit hall. So I I quickly just browsed the exhibit hall just a little bit, and I bought a few t-shirts from a a place that I bought some before. It's called a Shark Robot. They have mm-hmm. a bunch of, like, t-shirt booths all across the dealer's hall. So I bought, like, a Cowboy Bebop shirt from them, and then a Majora's Mask shirt, and some other shirt that I forget what it was, but they look really dope, and I'm glad I bought them. But yeah, so after that, I actually had to line up for the Studio Trigger autograph signings, because I got cut off on Thursday. So that was surprisingly large, because they didn't get to a lot of people on Thursday. Luckily, Mm -hmm. I was near, like, a I guess the front half of the line. So it took me about like 45 minutes to get up there and get everything signed. And it was kind of interesting when I got up there because like Imaishi and uh, Koyama were taking a while with their drawings. But Wakabayashi was kind of like getting through them pretty fast. So mm. when I got up to the front, he there was no one in front of him. So he starts like hand gesturing to me like, hey, come on, just like come over here. <laughs> And, like, the Tranther is like, are you sure you want to, like, do this? Like, you, you don't want to rest in between the, each of the drawings? He's like, no, 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 I'll, I'll just do it. Because, like, I think Wakabashi was also noticing that uh, the line was kind of going a little slow. So yeah, I think he wanted to make sure that the fans could get to as many people, or I guess they could get to as many fans as possible within the time frame, which was really nice. Man of the people, nice. Yeah, I mean, Wakabayashi's just such a great guy. I mean, we'll get to him later uh, with how he answers Q&A questions. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so I got a Wakabayashi's autograph first, then Superlog, then I uh, Imaishi and Koyama. So I just kind of got through that. And then I just kind of walked back to uh, the JW, because everything else that I wanted to go to was there anyways. So, like, I got back there, and the Anemone screening or the Rekka 7 anemone screening was still going. But what was interesting is that they were letting people in, even though the screening was over halfway done. So I just yeah, felt like, I mean, hey, I'm pressed. Can I just, like, come in and, like, sit in for the remaining screenings? And, like, 
the volunteers like yeah go ahead so i just kind of yeah. sat in there during the screening and i was kind of confused on what was going on but my eureka 7 knowledge from the tv series kicked in and uh it seemed like that was an interesting film it certainly was to rewind the clock back a bit i grabbed lunch from downstairs, the cafe downstairs. It was, you know, we had breakfast at the same cafe downstairs in the JW Mira, but, you know, I quickly grabbed lunch and then I went to line up for the Platinum Ballroom for the Sailor Moon panel, the uh, Sailor Moon manga panel by Kodansha Comics. It's very interesting because I, I noticed the Kodansha staff on the escalator while I was going up to get in line, but, like, you know, one big regret that I have throughout this uh, convention experience is that I did not work up the courage to actually, like, speak to people and, like, just chat with people. But, yeah, I saw Ben Applegate, like, on the escalator, like, on my way towards the uh, line. And so I got in line, I uh, got in pretty quickly in the, through the priority line. You know, even though it was a Sailor Moon panel, I was surprised the room did not fill up from my perception. It was not a completely full room. But obviously it was Sailor Moon, so it was very passionate. It was basically kind of how it was last year. It was like a news panel. But what was really cool about it was that they had the actress who is playing uh, Sailor Moon in the latest Super Live performances on the panel. So, you know, that was really cool to, like, see her come up and kind of discuss being able to portray Usagi, you know, and... How much, like, that role means to her as, like, a longtime fan of the show. So, that was really cool. And they announced, you know, they showed a couple things that we kind of already knew. If you just follow the news, like, Sailor Moon is available digitally now uh, in 10 countries. Unico collaborations happening in August. The Universal show in Japan is going to be closing in August. Uh, And there was a outcry from the audience. Someone said, bring it here! And Osano, you know, uh, the editor of Sailor Moon, the person who kind of usually comes to these panels to, like, uh, represent Sailor Moon, like, he replied, uh, save up and move to Japan, maybe. Uh, you know, use your summer vacation. So, not a whole (laughs) lot of luck in terms of, like, maybe seeing that universal show over here. I remember his, like, uh, response to, like, someone asking, uh, whether the stage adaption will come to L.A. or something. Last year was like, oh, I'm so sorry. <laughs> New York only. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, well, he's he's very honest and blunt, so I appreciate that. Like, no letting out the audience out softly. Like, there was a question during the Q&A portion where a guy asked him, will there be more Sailor Moon manga? Do you think Takuchi will draw more? And he was like, Please don't ask me hard questions. <laughs> it was a great response. <laughs> now, the Q&A questions, you know, there were some uh, there were some good ones, but there were also some questions that were, like, a little bit... You're asking things that you know these guys can't answer because, you know, otherwise they would be, announce it. Like, the, the first question was, like, when is Naoko coming to AX? And, you know, they can say, well, you know... She wants to, but it hasn't really worked out because, you know, she she has a busy schedule. Her kids are taking exams and she's a strict mother. So, you know, uh, maybe some year. <laughs> and then the next question was like, could you sign my book? And I was like, 
No, they they were going to sign that person's book. So yeah, uh, there was some there were some questions that you know were kind of off the mark. But there was a good question where you know one person asked what every panelist's favorite arc of Sailor Moon was. So that's a good question. Uh, yeah, but anyway, it was nice to see Yumi Mia on the panel. Uh, it was great to see Lauren Scanlon on the panel. Osano, like all these people who heavily evolved Sailor Moon, you know, bring a lot of energy, bring a lot of love. It was a good, like, convo that happened, even though, you know, a lot of it was just news announcements. Uh, there was some interesting stuff to be found. I'll try to write up as much of it as possible in my final AX report. But yeah, after that was Anemone, and unlike V-Lord, I was there from the get-go, and I have not watched the entirety of the Eureka 7 anime, because I was very frustrated with Renton, and did not which to continue, but I liked the first High Evolution film, which kind of was a compilation film that kind of showed Renton's arc and, like, cut out all the the annoying parts, in my opinion, and just showed me all the good parts, so I, I got into that, and then, so I was looking forward to this film as a continuation of that, but this film is weird, because it's about Anemone from a different universe, basically. It's not the same universe you know from the TV show. This is a completely different character interpretation of Anemone, who's like kind of trying to figure out her own identity and kind of trying to help solve this apocalyptic problem. And it's kind of interesting because Eureka in this movie is kind of like Homura and Monica Rebellion. Like the loss of someone that she loved like drove her insane and she basically became the an agent of destruction, the devil of this world. So Anemone ultimately reaches out to her to, like, help her break out of that, like, be a friend to her, help her, like, recover and, like, heal emotionally, and then, like, gives her the hope that Renton is still out there and that she can reconnect with him. So that's probably what the next... That's what the next film is going to be about, because the end of the movie is, like, Renton is in this other universe, and he's sent the message to Eureka. He's sent over the Nervosh, and he's like, you know, Eureka, wait for me, I'm going to find you. But I like this... Filmed just as a character study of Anemone, completely divorced from, like, any interpretation of the character from the series, because I don't really know Anemone yet as uh, portrayed in the series, other than the fact that she was, you know, more crazy and violent, from what I could tell, but, like... Uh, I liked her as a character in this film. I thought it was a very interesting film with what it was trying to do in terms of, like, this meta idea. Like, literally, at one point, Dewey is saying, like, you know, this isn't the world that you uh, you know. You know, this isn't the Eureka 7 that you know or something. Like, so, it's very on the nose in some respects uh, in terms of a meta commentary on the franchise, but I thought it was very interesting. And I, I enjoyed it a lot. I'm wondering when they're going to do the theatrical screening of this. I, cause it's been a while since the film came out of Japan. Uh, I think this is the first time they premiered it anywhere. Uh, so, um, I wonder if they will give this theatrical screening, but I would like to see it again, uh, in, in the dub as well, cause I, I enjoyed it a lot. Like, V-Lord, you know, uh, you only saw a fraction of it, like half an hour of it. So, like, what was your real impression of it from the half hour you saw? I honestly don't know what to think of it. It seemed like an interesting idea from what they were showing. And main twist from what I saw is definitely out there. I I would have never expected it. Eureka's crazy face when she's like, 
if it's for Renton, I'll become the devil or something. Like, that's... that's I that was... walked in when she was doing that. I'm like, what happened to this series? <laughs> yeah. Uh, there's some crazy CG integration uh, as well. Like, there are times where the characters are depicted with CG models. But mostly, I think that kind of worked with the surreal feel of the movie. Like, the yeah. ending of the movie is very interesting. Because it's, like, this very serious movie until... And then this ending is kind of, like throws it on its head because it, it is life and death stakes but they're being followed by these cute mascot creatures in this world that they have to escape from so it's like it, it's both funny and so there's, weird there's stakes but it's it is it is weird but i i like the total absurdity of it like i think that it's very interesting yeah i mean overall i think i guess i enjoyed it though i obviously have to see the entire film to give a mm. full opinion. Like, I haven't seen the first High Evolution film, so yeah, take that as you will. Yeah. I guess I didn't remember the ending of the first High Evolution film very well, because I didn't realize that Renton... The implication was that Renton died in that at the end of that film. Or maybe that isn't what the implication was. Maybe that was the Renton we saw that's in this other universe. So uh, I should probably rewatch the first film, too, to understand, like, what they were setting up with this whole idea of, like, multiverse parallel worlds and stuff. So, very interesting stuff. They're definitely not playing it safe with this uh, these retellings. Yeah. Like, I know, like, these retellings have been getting kind of mixed It's not really retellings. This is, like, a complete reinterpretation of yeah. mythos. Like, kind of like the rebuilds, except very yeah. different. <laughs> yeah. And then after that was the uh, premiere live drawing panel. Where we kind of got to be able to sit together again. It was just like a, you know, a series of Q and A's as, you know, uh, Imaichi and uh, Koyama drew, you know, illustrations. Like uh, Koyama was drawing the Mad Burnish throughout the panel, and then Imaichi was just kind of drawing doodles throughout the panel, like uh, but Mecha they were drawing like some. Like mecha kitties, like that, in response to one person's question of like, you know, you've done a, a show about like furries and you're doing it, you did a show about like mechs, so are you gonna do a show that combines the two? And then Amaishi drew like the mecha kitties, which was really funny. Yeah, someone also asked like a question if Promare was like an allegory for Trump or something. Yeah, and then like Koyama drew Trump like next to the, uh, the Mad Burnish drawing. Yeah, at the end of the Mad Burnish drawing, he took the Trump drawing from the other file, dragged it in, and, like, lit it on fire. <laughs> yeah, that was great. Also, the way Wakabayashi actually just answers questions is amazing. He's just, like, super straightforward and, like, kind of sassy about it. Yeah, he's a master at answering these questions. Like, overall, during the course of this panel, I think there were, like... Yeah, there was like 14 questions asked in this one-hour panel, so they moved pretty quick. Yeah. But, yeah, I'll have a full write-up of that, for sure, because it's a lot of very interesting info came out of that. We were also hour. sitting two seats away from Superlog. Yeah, Superlog was in the front row uh, with another person who I guess is associated with Trigger. So I think they were like cool. a Trigger, like a social media person or an animator. Because mm -hmm. I've seen them in Trigger staff uh, photos before, but I'm not exactly sure what they do. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I know I know they were like also a trigger staff member. Yeah. So that was really cool. And yeah, that entire panel was super awesome. Again, it's just always amazing to see, 
you know, live drawings happen and see like full illustrations come together in an hour is always mind blowing. So really nice. And of course, like there were like two different rock, paper, scissors sections at like the beginning and end for people to win prizes. And uh, those took a while. So, but like, you know, I, I feel like this rock, paper, scissors thing that they try to do with these cons, they don't really, they take a long time. And, uh, I don't know. I don't feel like it's the most efficient way to... I also feel there's a bit of an honor code to it, because, like, you won't exactly know if everyone's actually yeah. sitting down because they but got But at broad. the same time, I do find it fun, just getting everyone out of their chair to participate in an activity, and then, like, having this be a competition, like, that anyone could win or lose. Like, it, it is That's fun. so, so weird. I, I remember when, like, Go the Guy did it last year, and he literally was just going in sequential order. Like, he went rock, then paper, then scissors, and then rock again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, if only I had paid attention to the pattern. But speaking of a uh, Pony Canyon patterns, that was the next one. That was the Kengan Ajara panel that happened. And so that one was interesting. Uh, you know, that was where they had both the writer and the mangaka, the artist of Kengan Ajara there. We got Daromion and then the author of Kengan Ajara, Sonjurovich Yabuko. Yeah, Yabuko sensei. And, of course, it was moderated by Naoko uh, Sukuda, the Pony Canyon director. Yeah, their editor, uh, Sho Kobayashi, was also there. Yes, yes, that's true. And so they basically screened two episodes of the, the anime. Not Because in the last year, they showed, apparently, episodes two and three at their Kangan Ashra panel. And this year, they showed episodes eight and nine, which they hyped up as the most cool fighting scenes. Uh, which I'm sure, if it's only episodes 8 and 9, they're even cooler to come. And, uh, but they definitely lived up to the, uh, hype. Like, this is basically the beginning of the, uh, tournament in the series, basically. Like, these episodes. And so, each episode has its own fight. Like, it wasn't, the boat episodes weren't on one fight, they were two different fights. But, yeah, it was really cool just to see this because this is, like, totally, like, a Baki-esque show, where it's, like, these ridiculous fighters with these crazy superpowers or super hulked out with muscles. And, uh, it was just kind of fun to see insane action on the screen. Like, in episode 9, you have the policeman guy who has basically his assistant slash partner... She gives commands to him because she can read, like, the reading patterns of people. And so with the policeman guy's reflexes, he can, like, react instantaneously to uh, his opponent's movements from her directions. And then, of course, he is fighting a guy who is, like, he used to be, like, just this honorable, good-hearted fighter from this village and then he got you know, recruited by this game developer who corrupted him and turned him into this big fat entitled person who is like hungry all the time and only wants to play video games and then you know during the course of the fight like he sorely starts to reawaken his warrior's instinct and goes crazy so that was pretty interesting stuff also the company works for is like literally nintendo Nintendo is the name of the company. It's pretty great. Yeah. 
So, yeah, Haru versus Akoya, episode 9. That one was real fun. Oh, my God, the Ronald McDonald, like, uh... The guy who basically worked for Ronald McDonald, like, literally Ronald McDonald is one of the sponsors who has a fighter in this tournament. That was really funny, it's too. It's so weird. <laughs> oh, my God, that was... That was amazing. Like, I, The King and Ajura, I'm really looking forward to this show. I, it wasn't on my radar before, really, because I, I didn't necessarily hear, know too much about it, but, like, this is totally, like, this Baki-esque fighting tournament nonsense that I'm all for with these ridiculous characters that I, I, I can't get enough of. Um, oh, my yeah. God. Like, the announcer character, like, she's the daughter of this company who holds this tournament, and then she's, like, the announcer of this tournament. Like, this Seiyu for that character is amazing. She is such a good MC. I love it so much. So, yeah, that that was fun. It's strangely, like, the main character of the show is barely a factor in these episodes, but, like, it doesn't matter, because the, the fights and the characters that we we watch in these episodes are really fun. I mean, honestly, that's kind of like Baki, though, where, like, some of the coolest fights in the first half of the Baki anime are don't actually have Baki in them. Yeah, I mean, but that, with the case of the Netflix Baki show, I mean, that's an adaptation of the sequel series, so you're, so the idea was that you already knew who the other characters were, but, like, yeah, it, with this show, definitely. It's very interesting. But, you know, it is a CG action shows, but, I, you know, they they say during the panel that they set out to make a CG show that you would not notice it was CG, and I think they succeeded. And they use uh, limited, like, they use stylistic choices to get over parts where they can't really animate. Like, during the flashback scenes, they basically use, basically illustrations that look like just the rough Ganga drawings, but they stylize it in such a way that it still looks visually striking and interesting. So I really appreciated that. So just a totally fun show to watch. Really looking forward to binging it when it drops on Netflix later. Yeah, I, I think I'm definitely going to check it out. But like after the screening, uh, Dado Mion uh, actually drew um, some stuff from the... Where just like he drew some characters. So he drew like the main character of King Ganashira. And one thing I was surprised about is he draws insanely fast. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But he's also fluent in English. Like, he lived in New Jersey for 14 years. Yeah, that was really cool. Like, he was able to just give responses in English. So that was... Yeah, I remember when the episodes were over, he's like, Hey, guys, wasn't that fucking awesome? <laughs> <Just> <laughs> yeah, like, that was so damn. good. Oh, man. Yeah, so uh, King and Ashura was a really fun time. I, I'm glad that we sat through that. And then after that was basically the next event was going to be Tokyo Ghoul S. And I was hungry by that point. And Wheeler didn't want to risk, like, going to get dinner. So Wheeler just sat in the priority line. And I uh, ran to try and find food because I wanted to eat dinner. And uh, I went to that pizza place that's, like, nearby the Marriott. I don't... Live Basil? Live Basil, that's it. So that seemed like the place with the... Shortest line. And, you know, sure enough, I was able to get my order in and get my pizza by, like, 9, 10. And then I just ran back into the Marriott and uh, got up by 9, 15. And again, they sent me back into the general line, but I still got in by, like, 9, 20, I think. And then I ate my pizza before the event started at 9, 30. So uh, it all ended up working out. 
But yeah, Tokyo Ghoul S, you know, both Wheeler and I, huge fans of the, well, I, I was a big fan of the, the, the 2014, was it 2014? Or was it 2017? I don't even remember. It had to have been 2017, actually, because it was not that long ago. We talked about it on app movies, so yeah. But yeah, so I, I really liked the first live action film. I thought it was a good adaptation. But this film, I thought, was even better. Uh, it was interesting. They brought in like an L.A. movie critic. He's not even specifically an anime guy, but he, he came in just to kind of give an intro to this film, Charles Solomon. So that was really interesting that they brought him in to like give this film an intro. But yeah, and then after that, there was an intro by Kaneki's actor that yeah. he talked about. Like, you know, he thought that this film, he also thought it was like an it was better than the first film. And, you know, yeah. after watching the film, I agree. Because, like, they committed to a really strict horror vibe with this film. Like, they downplay the action elements a little bit. And they really focus on the horror from this premise of, you know, the character of Shu Tsukiyama, the gourmet. And, like, his fascination with Kaneki that verges on kind of, like, almost this perverse sexual desire as well as just hunger. And they really carry that across really interestingly and well in terms of making this like a good horror movie. Yeah. I'm really happy how meticulous they've been with these Tokyo goal, like uh live action adaptions. Cause they yeah. really easily kind of just overemphasize the action, like the anime, but they're choosing to actually kind of take their time adapting the stories and having gourmet be entirely just a singular film and frame it as a horror film is just a fantastic idea because that already has horror elements in place but elevating that so that it it becomes a legitimate horror film is just such a cool idea it really makes it stand out oh yeah like a huge pivotal change it's like instead of Kaneki being forced to fight and this Coliseum against, like, you know, some other crazy human who has, like, a big axe or whatever. Like, uh, instead, Kaneki, you know, is just forced to witness someone being dismembered alive and eaten alive. And then he is grabbed and put on the same table. And there's so much horror and tension as you just watch other patrons, like, look at him with, you know... Um, their mouth celebrating just in, in anticipation of him being dismembered and you see like the knife slowly being lowered onto his neck but you know just the uh, unveiling of like his ghoul eye that attracts Tsukuyama's interest and like you know he and then just the pause where he like stops the butcher he throws him and kills him by throwing it up into a fan and he splatters and then like just the lingering on Tsukiyama just staring at Kaneki and like just that tension of like what's hap- what's he gonna do what's happening like that's just so frightening that's such good horror filmmaking I really really enjoyed the overall sense of unease and just the contrast that they're able to make between, you know, Tsukiyama's supposed elegance in his daily life that he considers himself like someone of refined taste. And he, he tries to act in a polite, gentlemanly manner, but he has these, you know, primal cravings for flesh. And that kind of ultimately just causes him to like lash out and lose control in these like, 
really, really uh, uncomfortable, but like compelling to watch moments. Like the scene where he's just like sniffing plot where he's wiped off Kaneki's blood. It's just, oh my god. So effed up. The actor who plays Tsukiyama, like, he really made this movie with his portrayal. He, he nailed like, it. Oh yeah. This really is such a great adaptation of the story in terms of, like, really focusing on the horror aspects to make it so interesting, and, like, really bringing out the best in a character from the original work that, like, I think even elevates it from the original, so super good stuff. But, you know, even though this film did not cover too much material, it definitely ends with a tease of, you know, they're going to do more films, they're going to get to that larger story. So it'll be interesting to see what direction the future films go in. Like, if it continues to be in this horror direction, or if they go back to the action approach. Yeah, I'm curious what they're going to do for the next film, because at the end, uh, one of the character reveals is a character that doesn't really have much of a presence until Tokyo Gold Re. So, Mm -hmm. are they going to just, like, skip to a re-arc somehow, or, like, I'm not yeah. sure, like, exactly what they're going to do. Yeah, they're going to probably play fast and loose with the material, perhaps, at this point. We'll have to wait and see, I guess. But uh, overall, I'm very pleased with how this film turned out. Like, this was really, really good. But that was basically our Saturday. It was a long Saturday. It ended at 11. But we went home after that. And then Sunday, you know, we basically didn't interact at all once we got to the convention center, Bielard and I. Because uh, I went to Artist Alley, like, immediately, and just spent basically all my time in Artist Alley until it was time to leave. I only did a little bit before leaving. But, yeah, at Artist Alley, uh, you guys know how I was last year. I was on the prowl for all that Mumiko Takashi Artist Alley goodness. And uh, that was the same this year. And I found a lot of it. And I think I hit up pretty much every place that was selling Rumuko Takashi-related prints at Artist Alley. Except for, like, this one one boot that actually had a line that was going back through other tables that confused me. So I didn't want to wait in the line, because it also looked like a big line. But that place was selling, like, a Sashomaru body pillow. Like, by the time it was running out... It came to Sunday, obviously that pillow was sold out, but like it seemed like there's still high demand. But all their Sashomaru prints were also sold out, so I was like, well, they have an Inuyasha, but no Sashomaru, so I, I, I would like that Inuyasha, but I can skip it, since there's so much else out there. So yeah, I got bought stuff from every place that basically had a Rumiko Takahashi-related print, and then um, also I got the new Yu Yu Hakusho print from Steve Yurko's boot. Uh, he wasn't there when I first got there, but then when, I, like, they were uh, wrapping up the prints I ordered, like, Steve came back. But I wasn't able to have a conversation with him, really, because, like, other people came, and I didn't want to, like, keep him from, you know, making another sale. But I wish I did, like, kind of mention uh, I was enjoying the deep end to him, because apparently, like, only other, only one other person did at AX, so uh, I, w- I wish I had also done that. But in any case... Really glad to have uh, bought more that Yu Yu Hakusho print, because I love Chapter Black. It's a good print. And also uh, more JoJo's prints from Steve. But yeah, so many prints I bought at, uh, at the Artist Alley. I think I blew almost $300. But Next yeah. year we just get a video of you buying all the stuff. 
that would be really funny to watch, I think, for a lot of people. Just me, like, it always nice. I got into Artist Alley, like, right when it opens, so it wasn't too crowded. I was able to actually make my way through uh, pretty fast, even though there were some places that actually weren't open when Artist Alley opened, you know, because people hadn't gotten to their booths to set up yet, so I, I did have to work my way around a few places, but I basically got all the Fumukotaka Hakaji-related prints that I saw that weren't from that one boot that was just really, really uh, high-demand busy. But yeah, uh, and then basically after that, it was like 11.30, I went and got lunch quickly, you know, just mediocre chicken tenders and fries, whatever. <laughs> and then... You know, while I was eating, I, you know, the Mudder's Basement panel was starting up in Petrie Hall, and, like, I would listen to the live stream of that. And then while I was listening to that, I also got in mind, you know, maybe I could also, I have a question in mind, but maybe I could ask him. I'll go see how long the, the line for questions is. So I went in and sat in, into the panel room uh, a little bit, and it wasn't too full. Like, it was... It was only like a hundred-ish people there. It was definitely not too full, but uh, it makes sense because it was a Sunday. But yeah, there was also like a, but there was a lot of fun questions that they were asking Mother's Basement. Uh, I didn't end up asking a question because I had to leave by 12.30. But, you know, I enjoyed uh, being in the room. And so then I left basically at 12.30 and that was my... AX, essentially. Like, I, I actually... Oh, wait, no. I visited the UART uh, exhibit, which is amazing. There's, like, 50 amazing, unique pieces by different artists, all related to Yu-Gi-Oh! That was, like, really creative and really fun. And I took pictures of all of them. And, uh, you know, so eventually, maybe I'll include that in my AX write-up. But, yeah, that was really cool to see. I don't know what'll happen to all these pieces because I think Konami is just going to hold on to them. Like, there's one piece that you could only have seen at the art exhibit because it was like a mural that was painted on the wall. Like, this giant mural of Yugi that I guess you're gonna have to just paint over because there's no way to preserve that in this exhibit. So, that was like, uh, you have to be there experience to see that mural. So, that was really cool. And then I bought, like, the art show poster, uh, because that was also cool. It was also cheaper than the other posters, because the art show poster is only $10, where the other six event posters are, like, $50. So, I mean, they're worth it for the price, but I, you know, I already boosted $300. So, anyway, that was amazing time, like, the sheer amount of creative art. And it wasn't just art based on the original series, it was, like, art based on just car, Yu-Gi-Oh cars that don't really have a prominence in the anime. They're, like, art based on Yu-Gi-Oh! 5Ds. Like, there was this, like, Leo and Luna art in there that was really interesting. So, some really cool art there. But, yeah. And that that was basically my AX. I basically went home, dropped off the, all the stuff I bought at the Artist Alley in Wheelord's room. Basically, everything I wasn't going to take back. And then I went to the airport. So, that was uh, that was my AX. And, Wheelord, what did you do on Sunday? Because you uh, did some cool things. You went to a concert. Yeah, so in the morning, actually, first, I had an autograph ticket for uh, Fujino Omori that I got through Bookwalker. So I went to that autograph signing, and that was pretty fast. Like, the Bookwalker signings are pretty basic. Like, you kind of just, like, wait in line, and then the author, whoever it is, will just, like, quickly do an autograph on the Shishiki and stuff. So I went and did that, got 
Omri's autograph. And then, yeah, I went to that, uh, concert, the Yoshihiro Ike concert. So, Maki Terashima, who is the, uh, president of Production IG USA, gave, uh, the Tanami Faithful staff a bunch of, uh, tickets for the concert. So I basically got in for free. So basically, like, CJ, I, and, uh, Kuro went to that. And it was a really good time. Um, they played songs from a bunch of different shows that EK had worked on. Tiger and Bunny, Saint Seiya, and, uh, Dororo. The Dororo songs were really good. They actually brought in, like, a professional Koto player. So, like, it was really cool hearing, like, the Koto part of the songs, like, played live. So, like, that was, I think, really cool. And overall, it was just a lot of, like, really nice and varied kind of music. So, yeah, it, it was a really fun time. It wasn't, like, a super packed showing either, probably because it was Sunday. So, like, it was just kind of a really chill experience. So, yeah, I'm really glad I went to that. Um, And then afterwards, I basically just helped CJ with interviews the rest of the day. So, like, uh, we interviewed a few different people for Janami Faithful. Um, so, Ryan Bartley, who plays, uh, Gilda in The Promised Everland, and, oh. uh, is also, uh, Ray in the Netflix dub of Evangelion. And, uh, then we also interviewed, uh, Cedric Williams, who was, uh, Don in The Promised Everland, who was also, like, a really nice guy, super friendly, and, uh, yeah, so once we got through, like, those interviews and stuff, it was, like, 6 p.m., so at that point, like, CJ and I just kind of went to Fatburger near, like, the uh, Sheridan Grand Los Angeles and kind of ate there. It was really good, way better than any of the food at the con. <laughs> <laughs> um, And then, yeah, after that, we kind of just, like, parted ways, and that that was basically the entire day at that point. I unfortunately did not get to go to the Yu-Gi-Oh! exhibit that day, though I went to it, actually, this past weekend, and it was really cool. But, uh, yeah, it was it was really awesome. I hope those art pieces get uh, shown elsewhere. Maybe it'll be a traveling exhibit that could, they could do, because it's yeah, really cool. I think the only thing that can't be is that mural. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that mural is gone. That was like, a you have to have seen it there, because they're going to have to paint over that for the next thing. Yeah, but yeah, it was really cool. Mm-hmm. So that's awesome. You had a really packed Sunday, but I think we all had a really packed AX in general. It was an exhausting weekend. I still have so many reports to write up from it uh, at the time of this recording. Hopefully by the time you listen to this, uh, those re- most of those reports will be up. But yeah, I mean, just the fact that we've gone on nearly five hours on Anime Expo kind of shows you how dense an event it was. <laughs> but... Yeah, I mean, I'm kind of in the same boat as Sakaki, is that I don't know if I necessarily will go next year, unless there's a huge thing that piques my interest, but, you know, uh, if Wheelord wants to go, and if I have an opportunity to meet and see people again, I definitely will want to. I think my biggest regret with AX this year is mostly just the fact that I was did not get to meet and speak with a whole lot of people like I wanted to. Part of that is, like, on me just needing to work up more courage to, like, approach people and like say hey you know i i really like your work i really want to just share like what i the meaning that i have gotten from it and 
like the fact that you left an impact on me and stuff, or and stuff like that. Like that, but yeah, uh, I'll improve on that next year. I definitely would love to meet more people, start meet more people at cons, and like make more of an effort to meet with people and just set aside a time to do that because cons can be so busy and it can be so hectic just running around that it's easy to like lose track of that. But uh, overall, I definitely think it was a good experience. Definitely not the best. In terms of, like, just the way the con was run, it was not a very well-run con. It was very disorganized. Yeah, just the sheer fact that people were waiting for hours outside LACC on Thursday that didn't get in. That was uh, really bad on their power. It was not a great con for general attendees this year. It was only really a great con for us because we had those press priority badges. Yeah, and the thing is, like, I probably wouldn't go next year if we couldn't get press, but we can probably get press, so that makes it a lot easier of a decision. Yeah, I mean, I'm honestly, in terms of a con that I'm left feeling really happy about and wanting to go back to, that, that was still Anime NYC. Like, Anime NYC last year, like, that was such a good experience. Even though, like, I had a scare in Anime NYC where I lost my uh, Wacom pen, and I was like, I didn't know if I'd get it back. Like, just the fact that I was able to get it back without too much worry, and, you know, like, got good direct support from, like, where to go and how to pick it up, you know, it was it was good staff, like, who was on the ball with that stuff. Like, I just felt the con was run smoother, it was, like, more amenable to attendees, you know, that was a good experience, I thought. Anime NYC was just a really chill con last year. Like, yeah. For a con that's in such its infancy, they really have a lot of good things going already. Yeah. It's like, I think it's probably going to be even better this year, and I think, I'm sure they're going to get more attendees, and it's going to be more busier, yeah. more crowded, but I think they can probably handle it, with at least yeah. how they were handling things last year. Yeah, especially if they expand to use more space in the convention center, for sure. But, yeah, overall, still with Anime Expo, you know, I think that it can improve if they just, you know, are able to hire more staff, uh, make staff more aware of, like, all these different situations that they need to be on their toes to address and deal with, have more entry points to let people in, uh, streamline some of the processes of, like, getting people to check their badges and letting people in and all that stuff. Maybe even just expanding to use more buildings surrounding the LACC to host uh, high-profile events. I feel like they have to buy out more of the LA Live area. Like, yeah. It really needs to happen at this point, because there's just too many people. Yeah. Anime Expo. We'll see what the future holds for Anime Expo, because apparently, like, they might be moving because their contract with the LACC is up this year and they said that you know they're they're negotiating so who knows who knows what the future will hold for anime though there's nowhere else that's bigger in LA yeah but we'll see we'll see what holds for anime expo in 2020 and beyond but with that uh I think overall I'd say our experience just personally was very positive there were a lot of really life king incredible moments at least for me, with that Rika Matsumoto event, with, with Mutual Strikes Back premiere, that was an amazing moment. I think we got a lot out of it. I was glad we went, because there were a lot of great experiences. Yeah, between like meeting all like the using really cool voice actors and 
getting Im- freaking Imai Yishi's autograph. Like, it was a pretty damn good con for me. Though, yeah, I, I know for most people, this year is probably not as great. <laughs> but, like, mm-hmm. I guess given our circumstances, it was... I think I enjoyed it more than last year from a content perspective. Though from mm-hmm. an... Uh, interacting with, like, other people, like, interacting with friends like Sakaki and CJ and stuff, that was a bit tougher. So that was kind of disappointing. Mm-hmm. But I'm glad to have spent as much time as we did with the, you know, our friends like CJ, like uh, Laser, and of course you, Sakaki. It's, it's always great hanging out with you. Yeah, I'm glad that yeah, we were able I to do so much at AX. been able to hang out more. It just sucks that he only really got like a day or two. I mean, and then it was all over with. Granted, I, like I said, I, I agree with Vlord. It was just kind of a situation where. I mean, well, we touched upon it, so I don't want to go too much into that again, but yeah, it definitely feels like um, AX is more of a thing now, and it might change next year, I, you know, never know, it's early to say, but it might change where it is more, at least, I guess I feel like with my first experience, it was, it felt like there was a lot more going on in the sense of just, hey, you're just, I'm just in the anime, I'm not really, you know... I'm here to meet up with friends, maybe maybe catch a premiere or two. But my main thing is just, I just like to see a cosplay, I just like to buy stuff. I feel like this year, I guess maybe it did feel more like this is more for industry people. And maybe it's because I was there as press, but I, I don't know. Maybe that kind of changed my, you know, perspective on it. Again, I even I feel like even if this year's AEX was perfect in every way, I probably wouldn't come back just because, again, logistics would make it impossible for me if I want to also go to see our expo. So, yeah, which it's I also really, really do. I'd like to try that general. out next. But, I mean, definitely, I, I still think it would be something I would, would come back to at some point. Maybe not next year, maybe not the year after, but I would definitely be back at AX. Because I still think it's a pretty good experience overall. Just to see, like, this con that, you know, you're not going to be able to... There's stuff that you're not going to be able to see there anywhere else. So, I still think it's a good experience for those who haven't, you know, haven't been able to go to a con that big. It's definitely changed my perspective on just what a con is. Like, I, I can't look back. I mean, the biggest thing I'd been to before that was Otakon, and I can't look back at that and say, wow, you know, Otakon just feels like such a small affair <laughs> compared to, you know, how AX is. Even Anime NYC, which I went to, to for my first time, the same year I went to AX this year, is just the experience is completely different. But, I mean, hopefully, hopefully, you know, I can make it to ANYC this year to cap off doing AX. But it was fun for what it was. It it was a lot of fun, and being able to see, basically enjoying stuff with friends and being in a big crowd like that, as much as I'm normally not into that, it was actually kind of fun. So, yeah, it was it was a good mm-hmm. experience. Most definitely. And until the next great experience, I guess we should start uh, giving our plugs and letting people know where they can find us. San Sakaki, would you like to take the honors? Oh, yes. Uh, as I mentioned earlier, I actually just wrote my review slash kind of, I mean, background of Pokemon and Shogakukan for my Shun Sunday blog. But mostly, and even if you 
tune in tomorrow, you can probably see an update to the Twitter, which is at WSS Talkback on Twitter, because Sean Sunday actually releases today. Well, yeah, it is 1 a.m., <laughs> so it's actually today <laughs> at this point. And for the Twitter, I mean, for the blog, if you just want to see the update, the um, right back on the Pokemon thing, and you can definitely check out wsstalkback.blogspot.com and also other Shonen Sunday stuff. I'm hoping to update with all kinds of Shonen Sunday. And, I mean, I'm hoping at some point that Jekka will have something up there for people to read, and it's my hope as well that she'll be reviewing Conan, the English-language Conan releases at some point there. One day. You you can only hope. <laughs> I, I, I hope I can convince her to do it. <laughs> One day out of the blue, it'll just show up on the blog, and you'll be like, oh, five years late, but it's good enough. And Conan will <laughs> still be running, so I got time. <laughs> yeah, that's true. And, Vlord, where can the good people find you? The people can find me on Twitter at VlordGTZ, and uh, you can find my uh, manga-focused reviews and other types of reviews over on all-comic.com. And then you can find my more Tanami-focused reviews over on TanamiFaithful.com. And yeah, so hit me up on any of those. Excellent. And you can also listen to V-Lord on the Tanami Faithful podcast. I think very recently you were on an episode uh, doing a retrospective on Hunter Hunter. Yeah, the Hunter Hunter episode that literally came out today. Not to date this episode. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very much looking forward to listening to that when I uh, work tomorrow. So that's going to be, I'm really excited to hear that. And yeah, check We Lord out and all that stuff. But as for me, you can find me at Lumrayasha on Twitter, wherever there's a Lumrayasha, that's where you can find me, including Anime Revelation, Annulist, all those fun places. But as for the show, you can find Manga Mavericks at Manga underscore Mavericks on Twitter, MangaMavericks.tumblr.com, the Manga Mavericks YouTube channel. You can just search for the channel name Manga Mavericks, but the URL is YouTube slash C slash Manga Mavericks. And we're also on Apple Podcasts and all the podcast platforms that you can think of, like Spotify and Stitcher under Manga Mavericks. And... You can send us any feedback that you have to the show on mangamavericks at gmail.com. And we love reading your feedback, hearing your thoughts and opinions, so definitely send us some emails and we can read them out on the show. But if you want to support the show and the work we're doing and help us continue to produce podcasts, roll this con coverage, and talk about all these events and more... Definitely donate to the Manga Mavericks Patreon page, Patreon-MangaMavericks, where we have a multitude of tier options offering a lot of awesome rewards for fans of our podcast, including at the $5 tier, monthly bonus podcasts, where we talk about all sorts of awesome different things, like we have a manga fight exclusively there on Monster Girls, we have an app movies exclusively there about... Captain Marvel. We have exclusive review of that time uh, I got reincarnated as Asha, which we actually recorded with Sakaki. So if you want to check that out, that's there on our Patreon. 
And we also have on the Patreon as well, like bloopers and unreleased episodes and all sorts of awesome content. So if you want to help support the show and get some more uh, podcast content for years while doing so, definitely support us there, Patreon-Manga Mavericks. But that does it for this episode of Manga Mavericks, talking about Anime Expo 2019, giving you a full recap of our time there and what we did, and we will see you in the next episode. Sayonara! Later! Have a good one. Goddamn, that was super long.